Chair. Okay, thank you, Clerk, and good morning, members. Maudie and Wai, August Tafalchirot, and very welcome to this morning's Health Committee meeting. Um, I declare the meeting open to the public online, and I would like to welcome all of our members who are participating by video conferencing today to maintain the social distancing guidelines that are uh, in place. I would also like to remind all members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices and to ask all members and panel members to ensure that they are on mute when they're not speaking and to use headsets if possible. Okay, members, um, given given uh, the uh, a change of time to the executive meeting, would members agree that we move straight to the minister's briefing and uh, then we'll revert back to our normal uh, agenda back after that time. So we will uh, thank you, members. We'll then go straight to the briefing from Minister of Health and he is joined today by uh, officials so I can advise that uh, members is mental health awareness, mental health awareness week, and the briefing from the minister this morning will have a focus on mental health issues. I can advise members that the minister will be joined by departmental officials. The minister has advised that he will have to leave by ten fifteen to attend the executive meeting, although officials will be able to remain if required. So I'd now like to welcome this morning to our meeting, uh, Mr. Robin Swan, Minister of Health. Good morning, Minister. Morning, Chair. Uh, you're very welcome this morning. Dr. Thomas Adele, who is Head of Mental Health and the Capacity Unit. Unit. Good morning, Thomas. Can you hear us okay? Good morning. I can hear you fine, yep. Thank you. And Mr. Peter Tugood, and Peter is Director of Mental Health. Are you able to hear us okay, Peter? Sorry, Chair. I don't think we have Peter on the call yet. Okay. So I'll pro we'll probably go ahead and uh, if, if the Minister's content, I'll I'll, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, Peter can join in and can be brought in then when he when he arrives into the call. So I'll go back to yourself then, um, Minister, if you want to go ahead and, and give us your briefing today, please. Um, certainly, Chair. Um, my opening comments will be, I suppose, a bit more longer than, than the usual COVID update that I gave before. Um, we go into questions, but Chair, uh, committee members, can I thank uh, all of you for, for inviting me to speak today about one of, of my top priorities and one of the most important aspects of my department's remit that of mental health. Um, as you've already acknowledged, uh, Chair, today's executive meeting is slightly earlier than usual, so I'll have to leave around 10.15, uh, but officials will stay on to allow the discussion to continue. I'm also aware of, of the committee's motion next week, uh, and that will provide another welcome opportunity for us to, to come together to discuss this, this very important issue further. Chair, as you've said, um, given that this week is Mental Health Awareness Week, it's entirely appropriate that we give this topic the platform and focus it deserves, because it's hugely important that we use this opportunity to strive to reduce stigma associated with mental health, to improve support for those who need it, and to secure the resources to ensure we have a system that adequately cares for our community. Um, before I do uh, begin into the main, I'd, I'd like to introduce Peter Toogood when he does join. Um, Peter's my department's new director of mental health. Uh, Peter has recently joined us to take up what is a, a newly created post, uh, which will allow my department to put an even greater focus on mental health and put it on a much more even footing with physical health. This is a really significant step forward as it provides uh, a dedicated senior civil servant resource for mental health, actually for the first time. 
I'm also joined by Thomas Adele, who is head of our adult mental health policy and a key member of Peter's team, who Chair, I know you in the committee know well. This morning, I, I'd like to give you an overview of the work my department has been doing and is planning to do to improve outcomes for those who suffer from mental Ill health, as well as challenges uh, that are facing mental health services, not least due to the pandemic. Members will be aware that to mitigate and address the initial impact of the pandemic on our population's emotional well-being and mental health, in May last year, I published a mental health COVID response plan. That plan set out a range of key actions my department uh, and its agencies were taking forward to support our communities during the initial period of lockdown and beyond. Um, this included the development of digital means of support, such as access to online stress control classes, the development of bereavement support resources, as well as the joint development of the COVID-19 wellbeing hub. And that was done in conjunction with the Department for the Communities and Inspire Wellbeing. A range of other resources uh, were developed, for example, to support students joining the health and social care workforce early and provide support for children and young people. All of these resources just continue to be available for those uh, who need them. Chair, mental health services, as we know, were under considerable pressure before the pandemic, and they are now experience, uh, experiencing unprecedented challenges. Inpatient services are under extreme pressure. Our mental health staff are hugely dedicated and caring, highly skilled and committed, but are doing a very difficult job in increasing difficult circumstances. An already difficult position has been compounded by the impact of, of the pandemic. Our trusts are reporting increasing referrals as well as heightened acuity of patients. Trusts operate consistently above 100% bed occupancy levels in mental health inpatient units. And those patients who are admitted are often much more seriously ill than would usually be expected. So it's really important that people understand uh, what operating above 100% capacity means in that context. It's simply that this uh, places additional pressures on already high risk staff, uh, compromising their ability to provide the care and treatment patients need. What this means is that people whose mental health needs are, uh, are such that they need to be admitted to hospital. People who are in crisis, who are seriously ill, uh, are being asked to, to sleep in armchairs and on sofas in hospital. The statements we all make about taking the stigma attached to mental illness uh, must feel a little hollow to people finding themselves in that situation. And I, I, I must emphasize that this is not simply a problem of not having enough inpatient beds, because too often a situation arises because beds are having to be used for people who cannot be discharged because of the absence of the community services that they need. It is highly likely that these pressures will continue as the mental health surge we have all been anticipating begins to bite over the coming months. Indeed, um, evidence from other countries indicates that we are only at the beginning of that surge dealing with the knock-on effects um, of uh, not just lockdown, but the pandemic itself. Even as our society is now beginning to take the first step back to normality, the impact of the last year will have a lasting effect on our communities and their mental health and on the services that support them uh, for some time to come. And in particular, mental health and patient bed pressures are likely to continue. But to deal with these severe pressures in the short, medium and longer term, 
a number of key actions are being taken forward by my department and its agencies. So to deal with the inpatient bed issues in the short term, the Health and Social Care Board has established a regional bed flow network. This group is meeting weekly and is looking uh, at a number of options to increase capacity in the short term and the medium term as well. But in the longer term, the provision of psychiatric, low secure, inpatient and mental health rehabilitation services are likely to have a positive impact on patient flow and bed capacity, as well as providing better outcomes for patients. I've recently approved the, the policy direction in both of these areas, and that work can now start to develop those detailed proposals. A comprehensive review of crisis services has also recently been completed, and the site workings have the potential to have a significant positive impact on people in crisis and on pressures on services in the longer term. And once my officials and I have an, had an opportunity to fully consider those recommendations, I will also make a decision on the way forward and have that conversation uh, with your sales chair. These uh, reviews and a number of others were commissioned as part of the Mental Health Action Plan that I published in May last year. And I'm pleased with the progress made in the implementation of the Action Plan because most of the 38 actions are either on target or are substantially completed. Some notable uh, achievements to date, Chair, include the creation of a mental health champion, the approval of the business case and securing recurrent funding of 4.7 million for the development of a specialist perinatal mental health community service model, the establishment of the CAMS and forensic managed care networks, the launch of a mental health innovation fund, and as I have just mentioned, the, the completion of review uh, reviews actually of crisis services, uh, transitions from CAMS to other mental health services, or eating disorder services, personality disorder services, psychiatric loop secure, inpatient services, and mental health rehabilitation services. The outworkings of sorry, the Minister. Sorry, sorry, for sorry for cutting in there. It's a wee bit. You're you're breaking up a wee bit at times there. I'm just wondering is then you can you can do sound ways. You know, we're following it so far, but it did dip a wee bit there. So just right. to advise you of that, Minister, if you can maybe. I'm not sure if there's any way to improve it, but apologies, Honourable. Please go ahead. No, you're wrong. No, no, you're wrong. Colm, it's better that we hear this. Uh, thanks for that. That any better? Yeah, that does seem a little better. Yeah. Right. Sorry, Chair. And go back when just in, in regards to those number of reviews um, that have been um, that, that completed, the outworkings of those reviews will help inform future strategic policy on the completion of these actions actually represents a significant step forward uh, for mental health in Northern Ireland. The Action Plan um, also committed to developing a new 10-year strategy for mental health in Northern Ireland. And this, I believe, is the best way to address the, the historic issues facing mental health services, uh, to face up to uh, and meet the increased demand caused um, by the pandemic, and to put in place real and lasting change that will significantly improve mental health outcomes for people in Northern Ireland. Committee members will be aware that I published the, the draft mental health strategy 2021-31 uh, for public consultation in December last year. And following uh, an intensive period of co-production, the consultation concluded at the end of, of March this year, and in total chair with 428 responses. And I was delighted with the level of interest and engagement generated by this work 
and I'm very grateful to the large numbers of individuals and organisations who contributed to the process, both during the co-design phase and in response to the consultation, because their input is really valuable. The response to the consultation has been overwhelmingly positive, uh, with over 82% of formal responses received assessed as positive, and many of the comments and suggestions received will be reflected in the final draft of the strategy. The draft strategy itself sets out a number of actions to take forward uh, significant reform to mental health services. Its key aim is to ensure long-term improved outcomes for people's mental health, putting the individual and their needs at the centre. It focuses on the promotion of well-being across the whole lifespan and seeks to ensure consistency, equity of access and choice for those accessing mental health services and support. The strategy is my department's long-term strategic plan to address the pressures of mental health in patient beds, to meet the increased needs created by the pandemic and to put mental health on an even footing with physical health in this country. I also hope it brings us in line with the mental health provision in other parts of the United Kingdom and indeed once fully implemented ensures Northern Ireland has a world-class mental health system to be proud of. And I hope to be in a position to publish that final strategy in the summer alongside a funding plan setting out the resource requirements to implement it. Chair, one of the, the other areas I wish to mention during Mental Health Awareness Week uh, is children and young people. Because for many children and young people, the pandemic uh, has had a significant impact. The loss of daily structure that school attendance nor normally provides uh, alongside reduced social contacts and support in school could lead to deterioration in mental health. The support that my department put in place at the beginning of the pandemic uh, provided valuable resources for our children and young people when they needed it most. In addition, my department funds a number of community and voluntary organisations that continue to support young people during the pandemic. For example, the Public Health Agency's FLARE programme, which aims to support young people who are struggling with mental ill health, suicide ideation or previous suicide attempts. Furthermore, my department has worked collaboratively with the Department of Education on the development of the children and young people's emotional health and wellbeing and education framework uh, that was launched in February 2020, 2021. And the framework comprises a range of initiatives aimed at delivering better mental health outcomes for children and young people and will be especially important at this time, given the impact of the pandemic. Five million pounds from the Department of Education and one and a half million uh, from my department has been allocated to fund that plan. Some programmes in that have already commenced, such as the Health and Social Care Trust, Text and Nurse Service, and the Education's Authority Youth Service, uh, REACH, uh, which is Resilience Education Assisting Change to Happen programme. While others are pending business case approval, uh, that also includes a new child and adolescent mental health service comms, uh, emotional wellbeing teams actually uh, in the school service, which will involve the teams working directly with schools alongside other services. But Chair, unfortunately, despite the great strides forward we have made as a society in terms of, of talking about mental health, and the progress made over the last year and must also reflect the reality of the position we are in in regards to funding. As members will know, mental health services in Northern Ireland have historically been underfunded in comparison with other UK jurisdictions. 
mental health in Northern Ireland receives between 25 and 30% less funding per capita than in England, despite many indications that mental health needs in this country are greater, not least because of the legacy of the Troubles. And that equates to a funding gap of approximately 100 to 150 million pounds per year, which is a dire reflection on the low priority we as a society and in the past as a government have actually afforded to mental health up to now. The particularly difficult funding position that my department is currently facing does not make redressing that imbalance any easier or any more likely, and indeed, um, no funding has yet been identified to support the implementation of the strategy. The capital budget position also remains severely constrained, and without additional resources on the multi-year budget settlement, my department is unable to commence any significant new investments that will continue beyond this financial year. All of this limits my options and our options in terms of addressing the current challenges facing the system and in implementing the strategic improvements greatly needed and so long sought for by our communities. Full implementation of the strategy, which all stakeholders are fully in support of, will require significant investment to ensure that uh, and achieve what we want and what our society deserves will require full support from the executive and across assembly parties. We absolutely, in my opinion, must now walk the talk. If we are truly serious about making mental health a priority, as so many of us in, in government and the assembly and this committee genuinely want to do, then we have to do our, our utmost to get the resources in place to do that. But in the meantime, I can assure you, Chair, that I will continue to work to make resources available where I can, and to continue to make the strongest case possible to my executive colleagues for a significant increase in funding for mental health. A key element of this will be the funding plan, which I will publish alongside the final mental health strategy. And this will set out more clearly the funding requirements to see that strategy implemented, as, as I have mentioned. The figures will be significant, but now is not the time to bury our heads in the sand because we have seen the needs of our communities increase during the last year. We know it is unlikely to significantly improve and we are building on a shaky foundation of years and years of underinvestment. Now is the time for action, Chair, and I trust that the committee members will be supportive of all attempts to secure additional resources to achieve our strategies, aims, and improve mental health, out health outcomes for all in Northern Ireland. As I have said, I will continue to work hard to secure whatever resources I can for mental health within my own department. And Chair, one of the most significant actions I have taken in the recent weeks was the establishment of a £10 million mental health support fund which will provide grants to charity organisations who provide interventions to improve the population's mental health. Because I want to fully recognise the hugely important role our community and voluntary sector plays in supporting our community's mental health, providing much-needed advice and wellbeing support as well as commission services as part of that stepped care model. I also recognise... Sorry, sorry, Minister. I'm really conscious of time, and I, I do want to get to some questions. So I'm just wondering, I, can we? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm coming to a conclusion here, Chair. Okay. And as I said in my opening address, um, this is a very important issue uh, for me, for my department. I think for the work that the committee has done. And, and Chair, I do want to acknowledge, although I, I've been coming to the committee regularly on on a monthly basis, it has been for for COVID response. And I think, and I welcome this as a, a full engagement of another policy area that I want you to know that I think we can work uh, very strongly together. And so 
uh, in regards as, as coming to a close here uh, in regards to the work of the community um, voluntary sector um, because I, I think we all want to recognize the hugely important role our community and voluntary sector plays in supporting our communities mental health providing much needed advice and well-being support as well as commission services as part of that step care model and i also recognize that organizations in this sector have come under incredible pressure during the pandemic as they seek to support more people with less resources and in a hugely difficult circumstance in recognition of that the new mental health support fund will equip and enable these charities providing a wide range of support services for people with mental health and help to ensure that those who need to can continue to access mental health support services in the community. The fund is expected to formally open within the next few months and will be accessible through the Community Foundation's website. Chair, in conclusion, I, I thank the committee for its focus on mental health today. And I know we all share the same frustrations on the current pressures on services and the same desire to make things better. And I trust members are reassured and assured today on the scale of ambition from my department and from myself. Because I will also want to emphasize that without sustained recurrent funding, we will be limited on what we can achieve jointly. I know in recent weeks, my department's director of finance has given you a stark assessment of the budgetary situation facing our health service. That situation is concerning. Uh, we have, of course, many serious problems in health and social care, and these problems cannot be fixed just by long-term funding alone but equally they cannot be fixed without it. So in closing, Chair, I would like to reiterate my complete commitment to improving mental health services and mental health outcomes for all the people of Northern Ireland. There are many challenges on the road ahead, but I'm determined uh, to continue to strive to ensure that all those who need help can access it when they need it and to give the people of this country a mental health system that they can be proud of. Um, Chair, thank you for, for the time to make that statement this morning. But as I say, I think it was important to set out that that full case um, in regards to what is a very important issue. Okay, thank you, Minister. So um, I suppose I'll just go with maybe a quick round of questions from each member uh, before the Minister, and then we'll come back to another round of questions. So if members want to uh, tailor their questions in, in, that, in that regard, um, remaining conscious of the of the time restrictions this morning. So, Minister, in terms of in terms of myself, and I do welcome you know the the the, the direction and the commitments and all of that. I suppose one of the things I am concerned about in the action plan is in relation to Section Thirteen there around workforce and building a stronger mental health workforce. And we have met this week with the mental health policy group. We've we've met with other other uh, workforce representatives and community sector representatives over and. Clearly, none of this can be delivered. The most basic and fundamental building block of that will be the workforce. So I am concerned to see within the, the action plan that in terms of workforce, the costs are to be scoped. The timeline for review is still to be scoped. And yet there will be a significant lead time to recruiting and training that workforce. So can, can you tell me anything in relation to how that can be prioritized and what we are looking at in terms of planning for what would be needed for a mental health workforce? Uh, Chair, I'll, I'll let officials pick up on the specifics of that when when they come on to, to address that. But it is part, uh, as you've known, we've been receiving the depletion of workforce across the health service um, over the past 10 years. It has affected all sectors equally. Uh, in regards to the 300 nurses that are coming on each year, 
they are over a number of specialties. So you're right, this investment takes time for completion. There is no ready workforce sitting there waiting for us to put out a job advert for. And I think if you've seen the number of trusts you've actually been advertising uh, for key positions uh, over the last number of weeks when we move into the financial year, I've actually indicated that. There's a desire out there um, to fill these positions, but it is about getting the appropriate scope and time uh, for training. You know, because we have not been investing in that workforce. That's why we were where we were this time last year in regards to uh, concerns being raised by our trade union colleagues as well. It was about that long-term uh, challenges, but also about succession planning, Chair, as well, because without that continued recruitment process, it has been hard to put that succession planning in place. So I'm sure Peter and, and Thomas can, can pick up on those specific Okay. Yes, I'll 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 go I'll go back to that. For now, I'll go to members there, and um, so I'll go first of all to uh, Deputy Chair Pam Cameron. Go ahead, Pam, please. Thanks, Chair, and thank you, Minister, and and your team for being here this morning. I know you don't have much time. Um, I want to ask you specifically around um, what progress has been made towards a regional um, bed approach management. And um, I'm also wondering if you want to answer whether there is a there's a case for reform of the trust model within Northern Ireland. And, and I say that on the back of how well the trusts have all worked together through COVID. It has been very impressive how they've been able to work together. And given this, the very small population that we have, you know, is there a case for reforming that trust model and, and making it better? And also, um, have you made any progress towards that uh, regional approach to the bed management issue? Thanks, uh, Pam. And look, uh, sincere apologies about having to go, but the, the executive was earlier this morning that it, than it usually is because I would have liked more time to talk about this. And in regards to the regional bed model, the Health and Social Care Board already have uh, a manager in place to, to look at that because it's what we learned again. On, well, it's one of the learnings that came out of COVID uh, to manage that system because I said in my opening addresses when we're looking at over 100% occupancy of our mental health beds uh, over the weekend. Uh, mostly at weekends, uh, apologies, but uh, over the pandemic as well. You know, that's where we looked at that approach and that's where we see seen. Um, and again, it is about where we've seen that regional uh, coming together where the five trusts began to work uh, as one, especially in regards to the supporting of how they could uh, in, in regards of, of the likes of mental health and other specialities. In regards to, I suppose, the, the, the longer look at the trusts in regards to the functions of them, uh, I don't want to get into party policy, but Ulster Unionist parties have always said we should have um, one trust across Northern Ireland. But there may be an opportunity that there may be, um, you know, and this is this is only for future scoping or discussion, that we may look at for a single mental health trust that covers the entirety of Nor Northern Ireland so that we can look at a regional approach to standardisation of service and provision and remove some of the challenges of what in the past uh, has been a postcode approach, unfortunately, to some of the service models that we've looked at. But in, in the longer term, there is no de department direction at this minute in time for single trust, as I say. Uh, that is something that we, we put forward as a party policy. But the regionalisation approach is something that has really been embedded um, through the pandemic, something that has worked well for us and something that we want to build on, because we've now moved from that silo mentality that we've seen in the 
which has been challenging. Thank you. Okay, thank thank you, Pam. And going then, so in order now, I have uh, Cara, then Carol, then Orlea, then Paula, then Jerry, then Alan. Those are the indications I have in front of me at the minute. So we'll go to Cara Hunter now. Go ahead, Cara, please. Thank you, Chair, uh, and thank you, Minister and panel, for being here this morning. And Minister, when you speak, you can definitely tell that you have real passion around this subject, so that's most welcome. My question uh, this morning refers to the work of Community Crisis Intervention Services. Um, these services are always in high demand, yet oftentimes they do struggle to get that crucial funding. Uh, my question is, have you had any recent conversations in your department about longer and more sustainable funding? Um, just because I do know that the one based in the Northwest is exceptional work. Thank you. No, um, Cara, in, in regards to, to crisis services, and it is something I know that the, the Royal College of Psy Psychiatrists you know, found that, I think, was it 40% of mental health patients have been uh, forced to resort to actually emergency or crisis services um, on one in 10 in distress, uh, actually end up in the emergency departments. It's not the service model that we want to, to provide, especially for mental health, early intervention, um, prevents that, and that's where our crisis service comes into to part. But recognising the need to improve uh, mental health crisis response in Northern Ireland, actually uh, one of the actions, I think it's actions 8.4 uh, in the Mental Health Action Plan centres on the reconfiguration of mental health crisis services, and that was agreed to be prioritised because uh, providing that better crisis response is, is seen as one of the keys um, actually, actually, to unlock the ability um, of the entire system to respond better, because if you can get that part to work. In regards to the financing models of, of crisis services, um, I was up in the Northwest actually uh, with Tomas on Friday, and in regards to looking at the work being done by the Western Health uh, and Social Care Trust. But there's also an opportunity for many of those organisations who have been providing a crisis response. Um, without core funding to apply for the new mental health uh, support fund, which will, which I recently announced, you know, there's £10 million there, which will be handed through the Community Foundation in response as well. So there's additional supports that they can look for there. But the core challenges of my department through funding is, is something I've rehearsed. It's something I think committee members are, are well aware of and alive to about the challenges it faces on us. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Cara. And Minister, your sound is dipping a wee bit there again, just towards the end of that answer to Cara. So just just if there's anything you can do on that. Um, going then to Carol Nikhilin. Go ahead, Carol Lidahol. So um, good morning, Minister. Um, my 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 questions really in relation to so for example, you're responsible for making bids and you're responsible for your own budget. So while the budget isn't where it needs to be. It's, it's your decision what levels of money go against mental health. So I just want to make a point. The second question I have, or the first question I have really is, it is a postcode lottery, particularly if you live in North and West Belfast when it comes to mental health services. And recently our accident and emergency almost reached crisis. And a lot of those people, while be it older people, a lot of them are struggling with mental health. So given the fact that there is nowhere for people to go who are in mental health crisis and indeed uh, suffer addictions, then how is this figure going to be reduced? And the last thing I'll say is this, Minister, we had a presentation from your officials last week on health inequalities, and it was it was stats. There was no policy on it. 
So unless you actually get to grips and address the current health and mental health inequalities, then we're going to be having this same conversation forevermore, unfortunately. Yeah. And Carl, um, I think in your last point on health and mental health inequalities, um, I, I wouldn't make the point, and you know this as well as I do, it's not just health. This is about uh, a whole system approach. This is about uh, communities. You know, you and I worked together when you were Minister of Communities. This is about how we improve people's position in life. Uh, health inequalities come about because of poor housing, because of lack of access to education, because of poor, poor job uh, opportunities as well. Uh, so when we talk about health inequalities, those stats that we measure are the outcomes of that lack of investment and action in other areas. So when we look to the programme for government, that's where we start to address those. What we have to do, and as a health service, what unfortunately we're left to do, is pick up the end of those inequalities. So when it comes to the additional pressures on our A&Es, because of those inequalities that are systemic uh, throughout postcodes and certain areas, that's where we see those additional pressures, and that's where we have to put the support mechanisms in, uh, again, in crisis response in the voluntary community sector. So we get that early interaction, and, you know, and I met a number of the, the North and West Belfast organisations a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in regards to how how they can the work that they actually are doing as well, but the more work that they can do to get that early interventions in, and again, hopefully that ten million pound that we're announcing will help them to do that. Carl, we shouldn't be relying them on for those community and voluntary services to do it, but if they can help us now get over this crisis over the next two to three years, so that we can get the mental health action plan and strategy into place, so that the core Health service functions are there to actually support people. That's what we need them to do. So this is a bit partnership. This is a bit co-production. This is a bit co-working. Okay, thank you. And going then across to um, Orlea Flynn. Go ahead, Orlea, please. Um, thank you, and thanks, Minister, for the briefing. Um, I suppose maybe just to follow on from some of the points that Carl made. Um, I, I am a wee bit disappointed at the briefing today. Um, I think even when we spoke to the officials the other week, um, when they were talking about the mental health strategy, in their words, they were saying it was difficult to achieve any certainty on these plans, which was disappointing then. But I think I'm even more disheartened this morning because I think basically what you've set out, and I completely appreciate all the work that's been done, um, the perennial, the £10 million, um, you know, but all of that is really a drop in the ocean. And I think what you've set out this morning is, in your own words, that your options are limited, that it's going to be difficult to address the imbalance with mental and physical health. Um, and, and basically, you've set out that there's no funding. So while we'll have all these great initiatives that are being progressed and the crisis review and Protect Life 2, the 10-year strategy, and more specifically, the substance use strategy, um, I am just really worried that we've got to this point and we're not going to be able to push any of this on any further. Um, because of funding, and I accept that your budget's tight, but um, I know, Minister, at a previous health committee, you did give a commitment um, to increase the amount of spend from your budget on the mental health. The officials weren't able to confirm that with me two weeks ago either, so I'm waiting to hear back as to this most recent budget, what is the percentage figure that's being spent on mental health? And, I mean, the health inequalities briefing that we had last week, the biggest health inequality, except that it goes right across the board, but in terms of health, 
the biggest health inequality is drug and alcohol related deaths. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I'm just worried to be honest. Um, in in your budget that you have at the minute, um, what what are you actually spending on on mental health and particularly on the substance use strategy and the mental health strategy? Um, in regards to the substance use strategy, because it hasn't been published yet, or the mental health strategy, as I say, we'll put fully cost of proposals against that earlier. But again, as I said, I'm already 100 to 150 million pounds short in regards to that. Uh, I'm already, you know, I, and I think as my officials have briefed, we're at a standstill uh, flat cash budget. So to do the additional funding to mental health, we have to strip it away from somewhere else. So that that's how we have to. That's the decisions we have to make in the in the department. But that's why we bring forward these strategies, implementation plans to really show the cost, the cost benefit analysis. It, it, it's hard for me, and and I and you'll understand this too, to have to put that monetary figure on what we want to do, on what we know we need to do. Uh, but unfortunately, that's the system. That we're in, I have to make bids. I have to prove it. Uh, we we know, it, and that's that's where we'll get to, and that's that, that's where we're at. You know, and where I have been able to allocate money, uh, we have. You know, in regards to the perinatal, uh, you know, regional approach, uh, we want to get to the mother and baby unit. I need a business case to do that. We're working on that. This is about the building blocks now, early on this, and you know. You, you and I have met and talked about mental health. You know, I, I know we're both coming from the same place. The challenges is, and I've been open and honest in my, my statement in regards to the challenges that we're facing financially to do the work that we want to do. And what we're trying to do is set out that evidence base so that I can convince uh, other ministers that this is where money needs to be focused. Uh, it's a challenging budget. You know, Connor will tell you that as well. I got a flat cash budget, so I had to, you know, we have to, progress that where we can, but also make that bid for recurrent funding, because that's when we start to see that long-term strategic change that we need to do. And while, you know, the £10 million sounds a lot, but it's a drop in the ocean in the support to the voluntary community sector. But it's another, it's another, it's another avenue that we are utilising because it's there and needs funded that can support and that can help us achieve the goals we want to. Okay, okay. Thank you, and I do, I do recognise members' frustration with the with the amount of time we're getting with the minister on this very important issue this morning. Um, it is, it is regrettable. We did ask for an earlier start in light of the executive start, but however, that wasn't uh, that wasn't possible. So we're 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 dealing with a very tight time frame. So I appreciate members' um, adherence to that. I'm going now to Paula Bradshaw. Go ahead, Paula, please. Um, good morning, Minister. Thank you for coming this morning. I wanted to focus in on um, the eating disorders review. Um, obviously, during COVID, a lot of people put on weight, but we also know that there were a lot of like pupils who maybe started manifesting, you know, um, restrictive eating. And I know that um, some of my constituents' children actually ended up at, at the acute end of that. So I'm just wondering, to what degree is it is the review that's in the draft strategy? Is that looking at just not just restrictive but binge, but also overeating? Because we know then obesity then um, puts pressure on the rest of the health service. Um, to what degree? To take it in those sort of pastel highlighter children who who, who um, you know could could potentially um, end up with um, anorexia. To what degree are you engaging with the schools around that? 
And then the last day, Minister, in the Queen's speech this week, she um, indicated that legislation could come forward in Westminster around putting calories um, in restaurants. And to what degree is your department thinking of introducing that here in Northern Ireland? Thank you. Um, thank you, Paul. On the last point, I, I heard it in the Queen's speech as well. Uh, Food Standards Agency uh, would usually take a lead in regards to that. Uh, I don't have a more up-to-date briefing on that. In regards to the specific school provision, and that's in regards to the joint work that we've done through ourselves in the Department of Education, and really in regards to that six and a half million pound fund that we've invest, specifically invested in schools jointly for that mental health support programme, uh, because we do know we need to, to do that intervention. We need to make sure that the support services are there as well. In regards to, to the eating uh, disorders, um, I that, uh, uh, that, that piece of work we, we have, I'm trying to find it here in front of me, apologies, I can't get the, the specific up, update on it, but it, it is a, a response. Tomas, can you cover that when I come off? Just in regards, if, if I, can't, I can't get it to hand here, just pull it. I, I know it have, I have it in here in this bag. But it is about the balance of being able to provide those supports, not just for, as you rightly indicate, those underrated, but also overrating as well, and the challenges that that comes well, and the, the supports that we can give to young people and their parents as well. And if we can do that through educational settings, it is more benefit because it's getting the, the first door approach that we want to, to be able to achieve, that people can get that, that support when and where they are and when they need it. Okay, thank you, Chair. Oh, sorry, thank you, Minister. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Paula. Um, I'm going there now to Jerry Carroll. Go ahead, Jerry, please. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Minister. Uh, Minister, we've heard it from yourself uh, today. We heard it last week from officials and other ministers that the budget is, is bad. Um, I'm not good enough and going by what you've uh, stated. Um, won't cover the mental health pressures or services that uh, you've indicated you want, uh, want to see. And, and I know uh, you have an interest, obviously, in mental health. I'm not doubting that. Um, but I'm really concerned about the budget just not being fit for purpose. And I really want to ask specifically and politically what has been done by yourself, by other executive ministers, by your officials to challenge that because we were in and still coming out of an unprecedented period. And to have a budget which is stand still and continuing on as normal is simply unacceptable and it's a slap on the face for everybody who's been through this pandemic. So I want to know what's being done uh, to challenge that um, uh, terrible budget. Thank you. Um, Jerry, look, well, sometimes we say that you and I are on the same page of this. I know I've been making that argument about the, the budget that has been supplied to health overall. Uh, as you know, we were told we were getting a flat cash budget, uh, which in regards to us is challenging because one of the biggest uh, expenses that we have is staff workforce. Um, so it leaves all the other additional, the transformation pieces, the new initiatives, the new strategies, uh, all the more challenging. But that's why we have to make the case. And that's what setting out the action plan uh, and the mental health strategy is about. And that's why we'll bring forward a fully costable so that my ministerial colleagues can see what this actually costs to do. And then it's about seeing if the political will is there around the executive table and around the assembly actually to support that because it's easy to look to individual ministers and look to their their own budgets um without challenging and see what what is the, the greater good and that's where the program for government should come in about us as an executive us as an assembly actually coming together jointly to do that um, as well 
Okay. Thank you. And the final indication I have then is from Alan. Go ahead, Alan, please. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Minister, uh, the Great Recovery Bay, you were a magic wand to overcome the uh, funding shortfalls. You enable you to do all that you'd like to do. But in relation to this particular issue, uh, has your department recorded uh, increased instances of mental health issues uh, in the community during COVID? Uh, has it been across all the age groups? And as we come out of the pandemic, could any of these new uh, mental health issues begin to resolve themselves without professional intervention? Thank you. Um, thanks, Alan. Yes, we are seeing, we're seeing an increase across all age groups, but we're also seeing a, an increase in acuity uh, as well across many of those, those age groups as well. Uh, in regards to um, what more can we do, and not about, you know, it's not about solving themselves. It's about us empowering uh, individuals and us empowering community and voluntary organisations uh, to provide those interventions. And that's why it's important we engage with the Department of Education, support them as well. That's why it's important that we work with uh, the community and voluntary sector uh, to empower them as well. While we come out of this pandemic, we need every, every able body uh, to assist us. There are people out there who have been dedicated, who have been... Uh, committing over and beyond of their own time, of their organisation's time, over the past 14 months. And it's how we now work alongside them. So that when we work through your mental health action plan on the strategy, uh, we can actually get to a better place. I want Northern Ireland to be that role model of, of mental health uh, best practice, not just across the United Kingdom or across these islands, but I want it for our people. We need that. We need the strategy. We need the action plan to set out that direction of travel. I need the support uh, of the assembly, of the executive to get there, and I need their the funding support as well. We've got the buy-in from the people of Northern Ireland. They know what needs done. Uh, we're setting out a roadmap and the direction and the strategy and the action plan uh, of how we think we can get there, and that's why the consultation was specifically uh, important to us and their feedback that we've got. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Minister. Um, just before I wrap up, there I see where Peter has joined us. Do you want to introduce Peter, and then I'll come back to you, Minister? Uh, yes, Colin. Uh, Peter Goods, our, our new Director of Mental Health, and as I said in my opening comments, it's a new position uh, within the department. Uh, it's the first time we've had a, a civil servant at that level uh, dealing specifically with mental health. Um, so I think it shows a commitment. Uh, from us, that this is a genuine uh, approach and a, and a genuine piece of work. Uh, Chair, I, sorry, I, I apologise. I know in your comments said you asked for an earlier start. I'd actually a briefing uh, with the Chief Medical Officer prior to this meeting before I go into the executive. So, so I look, I wanted to spend more time with you on this because it's something uh, that we've had a good working relationship, Chair, between ourselves uh, and the committee in regards to this because there's a joint will and I think a joint approach that we can really make a difference here. Okay, so um, thanks, thanks for that, Minister. And just before you do go, I do want to acknowledge the uh, the decision last week to not uh, extend the children's regulations. The committee had expressed a number of concerns, and I know the sector had expressed a number of concerns around that. So I just want to I just want to acknowledge that. I think that's a good example of. Uh, 
of of where uh, consultations are carried out and then and then are listened to and action. So I think that's that's really welcome. It also came up last night actually in relation yeah. to our meeting with the young people around mental health as a key issue for them. So I was it was good to be able to say to them, listen, those that system is going back to the system that had been in place before. Not that that's perfect, but it's certainly better than the than the curtailed system that had been in place throughout COVID. So um, listen, just just uh, thank you for this morning, Minister. Um, regrettable, I think, for all of us that it has yeah. been disrupted in terms of timing. This is a massive issue, I know, for you and for us and for the sector out there, and one that, that we really do need to get to grips with. We'll see how we get on with the officials. If there are outstanding questions, then members can maybe put those through to you. Yeah, no, no, Chair. Look, there, there, there is no problem. With this. And apologies. I know, I know, on our our, our four weekly schedule, it was um, I was meant to be in front of you again next week in regards to you know the usual presentation. But as this is Mental Health Week, I thought it was useful that we actually did this today because you know that's that's where the committee's focus is. But you know, as we come out of this pandemic, the more engagement we get in regards to these. Um, the, the the delivery of these services that we're meant to be concentrating on. Uh, the more I appreciate the engagement uh, that we have. Sorry, Chair, and just on a final point, I've actually found the response to, to Paula, uh, and just to let her know that I uh, approved the inclusion of the policy uh, for the eating disorder service provision across Northern Ireland, which has been examined by the Health and Social Care Board, uh, uh, and that policy direction is included uh, in the final and published mental health strategy for 21-31. And it's actually at the, the development of a detailed business case uh, as well in regards to eating disorders. So I, I leave Thomas and Peter to, to follow up on the detail of that, Chair. But if there are further further questions, we're happy to come back and re-engage uh, on this issue because it is a large, large piece of work. And as I said, we'll be able to engage uh, next Tuesday, I think it is, when the committee motion comes forward uh, as well in regards to mental health. So thank you for that. Okay, thank you, Minister, and uh, we'll, we'll let you go. Good luck and take care uh, in the time ahead. Okay, all the best. Okay, um, so I, I suppose I'll pick up again then, Tomas and Peter, in relation to that issue I was asking the Minister about in relation to workforce. And obviously, first of all, the 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 key nature of having the workforce and people in place, the lead time that's involved in workforce and the planning that's involved in that. And that's why I'm disappointed in section 13 there in the workforce plan, that these things are still to be scoped, timeline review to be scoped. There's very little detail in terms of, uh, and nothing else can fall in place until the workforce is in place. So I'd like some detail on what plan is taking place in that. I also noticed a reference within that section to consideration of alternative methods of working and alternative workforce. I would like to uh, draw out what what that alternative workforce refers to and uh, where, it, where it might exist and how it might be mobilised. So uh, whichever of you, I'm not sure which you want to lead off on that, please. I, I'm guessing that would be me. Sure. Thank you very much. Okay, so I, I can start with the alternative workforce first, because I think that's uh, the easiest um, to answer straight away. We believe that the traditional workforce mental health this is hugely important. So um, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, nurses, that's an absolute key part of our mental health workforce. There's, however, also significant other people who provide really good mental health interventions, such as counsellors, um, a variety of therapies, you know, art therapy, music therapy, and so on. And those alternative workforce have often not been considered part, part of core mental health workforce. We want to make sure that they are considered part of core mental health workforce and to bring them in to 
um, the, the bigger picture of workforce planning and we talk about the mental health workforce. So let's make sure we use all available resources to us, not just what's traditionally been seen as the medical or the um, social care model of mental health, but the, the, the bigger the bigger picture. So that's what we mean by that. Um, and we have clarified it further in our in, in, in the work with the mental health strategy to make it very explicit what it is we're talking about. So there's no misunderstandings here. We're not looking to undermine the existing workforce. We're looking at um, enhancing the workforce overall. And as I said, the workforce review is a very, very key thing. Unless we know how many people we need to do the work, it's really hard to plan ahead going forward. Um, as I said, it, it takes time to plan, but it takes seven years to train a psychiatrist. Um, a psychologist spends seven, uh, six years at university, at least. These things are not quick fixes. But saying that, it's important we get it right. We shouldn't rush through workforce review just to have something on the books. It must be a good workforce review. I mean, to that extent, we, we've been working on planning what the workforce review would look like and how we can get that done. It's something we see as priority, but it's also something that I need resources to do. Um, we, we can't do that in-house in the department because we need help and support from professionals and people that understand how services are delivered on the ground. Um, and until we get that resourcing, it is very difficult for us to carry out that review. But we do see this priority, and, and I would hope that it is something we can start later on this year. Okay, well, that, that's disappointing, Tomas, in, in the sense that I know a review should be, should be good and should be done properly and not rushed, but the problems have been known for quite some time. So I'm, I'm surprised that we're only now getting to the point of saying, let's do this properly. You know, surely that, that is disappointing, given, as you pointed out there, some of the disciplines and professions require six years of training. So um, that, that, is, that is a concern and, and one that, that I think that, uh, you know, obviously we can't go back and redo it, but it's just something that I think there's a sort of a trend whereby we're very, very good at reporting what the problems are, but actually putting putting specific plans in place and implementing those plans to address the problems is the bit of the picture that's not happening to the degree that many people would like. So, um, okay, I'm going to I'm going to have another. I'll, I'll, I'll come back. I'll come back maybe on, on further questions. That when I when I uh, because I, I'm also conscious, and I don't know how this fits in with the larger workforce review that Charlotte McCardle was doing, and I know Charlotte's chief nursing officer. But that workforce review was that simply on on uh, nursing, or was there was mental health not taken into account as part of that? I. I can't speak on the details on Charlotte's workforce review, but I know that mental health, mental health nursing was definitely part of her review. So there has been work ongoing. We just don't have a comprehensive workforce review on mental health as a whole. We're considering how all the workforce joins together. So I mean, it's not that work has been standing still for years. There has been work ongoing. I mean, our social work colleagues in the department are looking at social work and in mental health services. I mean, Charlotte has been looking at mental health nursing and the need for mental health nursing going forward. But we need to bring, bring together this comprehensive mental health workforce review, where we can see how all these professions work together as a whole, and how we can resource the system going forward um, properly. But I mean, mm -hmm. the, the disappointment that has not been done in the past, I can only share with you. I, mean, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't say anything else. But that it is frustrating. Okay, and, and I will just declare my own interest as having worked as a social worker, including within the crisis crisis response teams. Um, but it is it is deeply frustrating and it's something is a matter of urgency now that we have to start uh, recruiting these workforce and get them in place or where you know a 10-year strategy we're going to be more than halfway through that strategy before we have the right people in place if we don't if we don't start to action that 
Okay, I'm going to go across to, to members then. So I'm going to go to Pam first of all, then Paula Bradshaw, then Cara Hunter. So go ahead, Pam, please. Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you, panel. Um, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a bit more about uh, the mental health strategy going forward and what role technology will have within that strategy. And thinking in particular of the uh, Encompass program um, and the the real issue that you have uh, around different um, computerized systems within trust and different um, different kind of um, actions in relation to coding and, and actually um, gathering the data that you require. Uh, th thank you very much. I mean, the, we, we all know the frustrations of the, having different computer systems across the trust, and that's something that, that we, we all share, I believe. Um, and Compass will certainly help this mental health. It will help us to have comparative and um, shareable information between both community mental health services and inpatient mental health services and across the trusts. Um, to have good understand, understandable data and good outcomes measurements is really important to understand how we can assess what we're doing and how we can do that better. That is specifically mentioned in the strategy is one of the actions to have a clear outcomes framework that hinges on having a data system that, that works across trust and a work between within trusts when Encompass will help us to do that. Uh, I just want to make it very clear that that is not the only thing we're doing when it comes to technology and mental health. We're also looking at how we can help technology or how technology can help and support professionals doing the work more effectively. And that is by being able to share data uh, easily and Encompass will help us to do that when a patient moves or moves between trusts, which is very common in mental health, as we all know. But it also includes developing, for example, online um, CBT or other similar online treatment methods, not in replacement of existing methods, but as an additional support for people where this would be helpful. Um, so that all these technology and these online methods will help us, will help for a better, more responsive service as a whole. If I, if I could add to that as well, um, uh, I think that the, the key thing is just finding high ways of working better and digitally complement. Uh, the face-to-face -face working and that came through in the uh, consultation as well that it's just emphasized what Thomas, Thomas said there that this isn't about replacing face-to-face -face intervention it's about complementing adding to and improving and there are specific you know refinements that we're, we're proposing to make in the final strategy uh, that would re reflect that but it's really about building on a lot of the good stuff that's happened over the past year uh, that, that has been forced on us as part of the pandemic you know trying to develop that further uh, and, and you know exploit its full potential in a, in a more normal operating context appreciate that um thank okay. you i think we do absolutely need a, a balance and going forward from um uh, pre and post pandemic and, and how things operate and, and it's good to take the good the good bits that have worked well and build upon that and use but I, I would like to see you know um this provision being rolled out and, and rolled out as, as as quickly as physically possible have, have you any comment around um gp access or or gp provision of um talking therapies um to any update on that to give us this morning Um, talking therapies or uh, counselling or other therapies as support as mental health support for GPs. That is an absolutely vital part for, of GPs to be able to provide mental health support, especially step one and step two and a step care model. Um, I mean, counselling services are available at many GPs, but not all GPs. And I know work is underway at the moment in the Health Care Board to try to uh, encourage further uptake of counselling services. 
um, similar, we have token therapy hubs. They are currently run by the trusts. One of the actions in the health action plan is to shift the focus of token therapy hubs towards primary care. So it becomes part of the toolkit of GPs in their delivery of mental health services. This will go hand in hand with the development and rollout of further mental health workers in the primary care MDTs, which will, is all about helping people get quick access to mental health services when they need it, where they need it. Um, some of these things are not, not easy um, and they, they, because of structural change, and it's something, but it's something we're working on, it's something we're actively working on at the moment to make sure that it's available to GPs um, at, at high numbers. That's, okay. that's great. Thank you, Colin. Just, just if if I may, just come back briefly on that. I just want to reiterate the importance of that that um, a physical GP access in the first place to to access any of the services that are available. And obviously, um, that there are great difficulties because it's not streamlined across the board across GPs. And some people, um, especially people maybe with mental health issues will have even greater difficulty actually getting in contact with their GP, let alone seeing them. So I hope there is some more going on in terms of addressing those particular um, issues around access to GPs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. Um, going then to Paula. Go ahead, Paula, please. Um, thank you, Chair. I'm um, just a request of Thomas, if he can in slower time and um, tell me what the minister <laughs> reported there in terms of this um, policy direction a wee bit more detail around that and then I have a, a separate question for peter thank you yeah so we um the health care board had worked on an interview of eating disorders for, for us together with the regional eating disorder network group which consists of service users clinicians carers and um, community from the sector and um, trust and board representatives so they come up with a service proposal for a way forward, which would enhance um, mental health or so eating disorder services across Northern Ireland. So additional medical nursing, dietetic, psychology, and occupational therapy and social work staff. Um, it will provide in-reach from community work into um, inpatient settings where we have mental health patients, eating disorder patients in, in mental health wards. And it will also expand the use of other therapies and other um, adult health profession interventions in eating disorder services that, that that's a, that's a very short summary of um, a large paper but it, it provides a number of options that we have recommended for or the minister has approved for a future policy direction that this will massively improve eating disorder services will and will ensure that they are compliant with nice guidelines and similar it will also um make sure that we can provide good pathways for all people with eating disorders um exactly how those services are developed and how they're delivered must must obviously depend on how what's best clinical outcomes um but it will cover all kinds of eating disorders so we have asked the board to develop a detailed business case for us so we can um consider funding for that which obviously we have to do as part of the process and the mental health strategy will reflect the work of the uh, regional eating disorder network group which has done really fantastic work um, to produ produce that for us um, thank you, Thomas. Uh, I, I, I appreciate it's still in sort of draft and, and development format. But at what stage can we, as a committee, get uh, a more substantive paper on that? Will it be whenever the minister signed off, or is there we can get in advance of that in terms of the thinking? Plenty of brilliant stuff going on there. Just a, a, a number of constituents who are, are very keen to feed into this, and they'll be delighted to hear that this is the sort of direction of travel. I am sure we can provide something in writing to you in more detail um, now. Um, if you 
if, if the committee writes to the department, I'm sure we can provide it in writing, as long as you give me a few days to, to summarize all, all that for you. That's, that's not a problem. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, my, my question is, is, I think it's to Peter, you mentioned there about the length of time it takes for people to become specialists. And, um, uh, an area where I'm particularly concerned about are those people who are victims and survivors, not just of the troubles, but also from the mother and baby homes who've had forced adoption, children taken away from them, um, historical clerical child sex abuse in terms of say, sexual abuse. Uh, and others um, who require a, a very, very um, intricate conversation with somebody who really understands what they've been through and the support they need. I'm just wondering, do you feel that there are enough of those um, specialists in Northern Ireland? Uh, if not, what is being done to um, be able to um, put those people in place? Thank you. Paula, if, if you don't mind, I'll probably uh, defer to Thomas again uh, for a substantive response on that. I'm still very much reading into the brief, uh, I'm not long in post, so I wouldn't want to, to give you uh, some incorrect information. Um, Thomas, is that something you could respond to? Uh, absolutely. We, we have a really good, dedicated workforce for those areas in Northern Ireland. We have really good staff to carrying out really good work, both in the statutory sector and the community development sector, and that, that I don't want to take away from anything of that. But, but I think it's accepted that we need more. Um, I mean, the, the levels of people with trauma-related mental health problems in Northern Ireland are significant, um, whatever that trauma is. And we need to make sure that we have a workforce that is trauma-informed and that is an expert in how to help people with that kind of trauma. There is some work in some recommendations in the strategy around research and about helping people helping Northern Ireland become better at doing those things and pulling that together, that will help um, ensure that we have the right training for people. So, so it's, an on, it's an ongoing issue. Very very important to say that people who are have severe needs can definitely get the help and support they need in Northern Ireland. That support is there. Um, I mean, no one will be turned away if they, have it, if, if they have severe needs, and there are specialists for those people. So I would want to be very, very clear we shouldn't scare people away from seeking help. Okay, thank you very much. And again, if we can be kept up to date with that sort of policy review that you mentioned there, Thomas, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Pamela. Thank you, Paula. So now I have in, in the following order, I'm going to Chiara, then Arlea, and then Carol. So Chiara, go ahead, please. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel. Um, my question refers to uh, last night we had a fantastic conversation with young people about um, you know barriers to access mental health support and how we can improve them and one thing that was mentioned was uh, if you live in a rural area how it is that bit more difficult um, to get counselling and to get access to medication so just off the back of that can I ask what conversations or engagements the department is having uh, with groups like the Rural Community Network um, to identify need and um, you know the impact in these kind of rural areas because I do know uh, within my own constituency, um, we've had conversations with constituents in areas like kind of rural Limavati Park area, and it really is difficult um, if you don't have access to a car, for example, getting access to your GP can be difficult. And there's fears um, as we move more towards utilising technology to get in contact with our GPs, rural communities are being left behind due to broadband issues. Um, so just uh, any clarity on that, I find extremely helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, if, first of all, I can that I mean, access to mental health services should not depend on where you live. That is something that's very, very, very clear on. Um, we want to have an equity of service across Northern Ireland with local service delivery. 
that means that it is delivered differently depending on the setting. So it matches the, the need of the population. That, that is an absolute key thing for us go, going forward. Um, we have engaged quite extensively with a large number of people over the last um, 18 months, two years about the mental health action plan and about the mental health strategy. That includes groups um, from rural communities. Um, and I, I met with a number of them personally, and they've taken part in our reference group work and in our uh, co-production work, both with mental health strategy and action plan. So do, those who have been, have been considered, we, we're very aware of them. And it's something we definitely need to work on going forward that um, we reflect that in, a, in the practical outcomings of the strategy. Thank you, Tomas. And just off the back of that, is there any kind of uh, innovative initiatives you're looking at, such as social prescribing, to engage with people in rural communities? And I welcome your comments because sometimes people in rural communities can be left behind, and it's good to hear that their um, first-hand comments and opinions have been included. Um, so sort of prescribing is, is a great, great thing, um, and it's, it's very helpful to people, especially on step one, step two, on the step care model, uh, or people need support even prior to that. And that's not something that just for rural communities, that is crossed across the board. Um, it will look differently in urban and rural settings, um, but it's something that needs to be available ac across the board. We we really want to make sure services are catering for the communities. There might be that service in central Belfast might involve a drop-in centre. In the rural community, that would not be practicable. They would probably mean people have traveled to, as, in, as our professionals have traveled to the people who need the help. So, so it's, it's building that in, in the service delivery, in the service implementation, in the details from the very beginning. So that doesn't become an afterthought, but that is part of the delivery of the service model in the first place. So we, we're putting that um, th those kind of considerations as a requirement when we're developing the services coming forward out of mental health strategy. So that, that's why we're trying to ensure that that balance is not lost. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Cara. And uh, going across to Orlea, then. Gorai, Orlea, let it Yeah, go on me, Abit, um, Colin. Um, Thomas, maybe just the, the first question to yourself. Um, the Minister had referenced there in his briefing around the crisis review, and that so that's with the I'm assuming that's the minister now to, to consider the, the recommendations out of that review. Um, so I know the intention was to have it published by April. That was in a, in response to an assembly question I put in a couple of months ago. Um, so I'm just wondering, have you a timeline, Thomas, as to when we will be able to, um, you know, see the, the findings and the recommendations of that review? Yeah, the, the review was received in the department um, and I'm, a, a few weeks ago, and it is still currently sitting with me. The, the delay is purely on me, so blame me here, not not, not Minister. Um, I, I'm working my way through this as quickly as possible. It's a very comprehensive review, um, more comprehensive than we anticipated, which is obviously a brilliant thing, yeah. but it takes it's taken me a little bit longer to make sure we can provide uh, accurate uh, commentary around that review to Minister. My hope, um, barring any unforeseen circumstances, is to get it up to Minister shortly. Um, so in, in, so we'll scope, scope time from a weeks uh, rather than months. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to promise a date, um, considering that we're all under significant pressures and working very hard. No, that, that's that's no problem, um, Thomas. And that's actually, I'm glad to hear that, that it is more comprehensive than is expected, because as you said, you would rather that. That's that's a good thing. Um, so I know I, I'm due to meet with the minister when the when um, you have completed the um, substance use consultation responses. Um, he's agreed to, to hold a meeting with me, so hopefully that may chime in the same time with the, the crisis review and we can get a, 
a fuller conversation on on both of those issues. Um, and then just secondly, Thomas, I know that um, you and I spoke about this at one of the previous mental health APGs, I think it was, and it was around the um, it was around the I had put it into the minister about the department carrying out a food needs analysis for um, poor mental health, mental health crisis, and drug and alcohol addiction. So I know that um, the minister obviously did reference the prevalence study that was carried out um, around the children and young people. Uh, but he did say to me, and, and this was again in response to an assembly question that was last year in October, um, that um, under the Mental Health Action Plan, Action 15.2 calls for a prevalence study for adults. So is is that something that's that's maybe being that's being carried out by the department or has been done or have you any update on that? We've not carried out the prevalence study among adults, um, and we we have been looking at that last year. It's something that's been on my on my desk quite quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We at this point struggle to get value for money for that kind of study. We have significant amount of academic research showing us of the needs in adult mental health. Um, and, and across substance use and um, issue due diagnosis as well. And we believe that that data that already exists provides us with a fairly good indication of need. Mm -hmm. And we think that the cost to develop a prevalence study for adult mental health could better be used in providing the services as we have more academic research among adults that doesn't exist, which didn't exist to the same extent uh, among children. Yeah. So there's a slight different need. Also, the, the children's prevalence study gives a good indication on, um, it gives a very good evidence about the prevalence among children, and much of this carried on into adults. So it gives us a good basis to work on. Mm -hmm. So um, at, at this point, we're not progressing a prevalence study for adults, simply because we have the information in other areas, and we can use the money better to deliver services. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's still something that's a consideration going forward. If, that's, if we think that would help us, I, th I would definitely put that proposal forward. At this point, I I'm not sure it would, mm -hmm. um, considering the cost involved of doing that. Okay, that's far enough, Thomas. Thanks for that update. And then maybe just finally um, to Peter. So um, it's it's nice to meet you, Peter, uh, Starleaf, anyway, for the the moment. Um, but maybe just Peter. So in, in your in your own role, because um, I'm conscious that the minister says that this is obviously a new post that you've taken up as director of mental health. So could you maybe just um, explain a wee bit more around, you know, what your role is or, you know, who you'll be engaging with and, you know, what really your position entails? And I would love to organise a separate meeting outside of the committee just to, to get chatting with you in a bit more detail around all of that as well. Yeah, totally. No problem at all. Yes, I'm delighted to be here and I'd be delighted to have a chat with you about, about this. Um, yes, it's a newly created role um, and it covers all aspects of mental health. Uh, uh, well, and that's adults, children, and implementation of the Mental Capacity Act as well. Um, also, domestic violence, sexual violence uh, aspects, uh, as it falls within the DOH remit, uh, falls under me as well. So I have put four strands of, 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 of my remit at the moment. Um, I'll be honest, uh, I'm genuinely excited about getting stuck into the role. Uh, I, I, I was in the Department of Health a number of years ago, albeit in a different uh, capacity, uh, and I've spent uh, the, the last four or five years in CEO, uh, the, the last year of which working on COVID-related matters and, and the, the executive response to that. So really seen through that work, 
the importance of mental health and the emerging uh, issues that need to be resolved. And I'm, I'm personally passionate about uh, making things happen. I, I'm not. I'm not one for talking. I want to see things happen on the ground. So hopefully that ends with with, with yourselves uh, on the committee. Um, my background is is I have a strong finance background, so very keen and acute to the challenges around health funding. Uh, but I will be looking at any way possible to get money into the mental health arena and and to. Uh, and be as innovative and as, as imaginative as possible in, in that regard. What I am, I suppose, struck with, I mean, I'm only in post a couple of weeks, um, but it is, it's the need just to join everything up across government. Uh, and we've talked about that already in terms, there are so many determinants and so many issues uh, that impact on mental health across many different departments. And again, just, just through, through my previous role, you know, you know, I've made some really good contact across government departments, and I want to exploit that in the current role in terms of making sure uh, we're all joined up. And again, that seems to be actually strongly in the in the consultation, the the draft mental health strategy, the need to be better joined up across government, and that's certainly something that I'd like to to give priority to to make sure. Um, I suppose I've already had this conversation many times in, in the past couple of weeks with Thomas. To me. Your step and done, but it's so important is about seeing everything through the patient or the citizen perspective, not through the system, not through an organization. That that is challenging, and we've already I've already seen challenges in that regard, but that's certainly something that I would like to embed as, as we go forward and sort of uh, try and, and and put forth. So earlier, delighted to meet you, delighted to have a, a chat with you outside this uh, as to how we, we take things forward as well. No, that's brilliant, Peter, and wish you all the best in your in your new role. Hopefully it'll go a long way to achieving that parity between mental and physical health. So wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Um thank you, Early. And it is good, Peter. It is good to, to meet you there as early as said, and also good to see uh, that sense of that sense of commitment to the role does come across, which will be useful. I think it's also interesting just a wee around that the uh, the need to involve the individual and the citizen, absolutely. But actually also there's there's a strong potential within community as well, and the yep. need to involve communities um and, and and as well as individuals within the community. So that's all interesting stuff. For the future, I suppose it's it's a it's a it, it's it's interesting uh, considerations. So I'm also going to, I'm going to go now to Carol. Go ahead, Carol, please. Okay, Carol, uh, thank you and thank you to Thomas and Peter. Um, and welcome you, Peter, to your new role. Um, and just to repeat what other members have said, it's very important, you know, to give the status of mental health um, through a post like your, yourselves. Thomas, you in your some commentary said that the department were keen that GPs also took on board uh, through primary care the talking therapies. I just want to clarify that's in addition to the talking therapies within the community and boundary sector. Um, and you will be aware of a campaign, you know, like one GP campaign about getting GPs um, better equipped to deal with mental health problems. So that's my first question. The second question is um, in relation to the CURE pathways and indeed the Children's Commission's report still waiting into mental health services. So it's just because it's, it's something, first of all, it is alarming, but not surprising at the length of time it takes to fill these much needed posts. But certainly um, the indications from my own constituency work 
or that their comms on indeed model mental health services, the demand for them has increased. Um, so it's just to try and get a, a sense of those. And my last question is in relation to when the Health and Social Care Board is dissolved, Peter, will you be sitting on any new management arrangements to ensure that mental health is given, indeed given the same status and priority um, across all trust areas? Because at the minute, each of us feel that it is a bit of a postcode lottery and I accept that no one wants that to be the case. So again, they're, they're my questions. So thank you. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of GPs and counselling, I mean, counselling is absolutely key in GPs. I, I can have much sympathy for the one three GP campaign. Um, we need to ensure that GPs are equipped to deal with mental health problems. When it comes to the talking therapist hubs or hubs that are currently funded by the trust, they're currently funded by the trust and often delivered by the community wellness sector through contracts. Um, what, what we want to get to is a stronger working between the GPs and the community wellness sector. There, there shouldn't be an enemy here. There, there should be there should opposition. There should be a partner in the delivery of this, um, both in in the good, really good voluntary work they do, but also through the statutory funding that comes through the talking therapy hubs. So, so this is an additional resource for GPs, or maybe rather putting the resource exist through the most appropriate place, so it's easily more easily accessed. Um, so this is not in competition to the community wellness sector; it's in together with the community wellness sector that this they should enhance the overall provisions uh, rather than take anything away from anyone else. So I mean that's. Sorry if I wasn't clear on it earlier on. It's, I mean, I want to make it very, very clear that community wellness sector is partner in the delivery of this, and, and that's absolutely key. Um, when it comes to in increasing staff and post and the, the Nikki still waiting plan, we, we know the challenges. I mean, I'm not shying away from that. We, we need to do the, everything we can to ensure the workforce is available, that posts are attractive, that we have the right banding level, so therefore post will take the right will be interested and that's something we're working actively with the board and the trust to make to make sure that's the case um, and i can even give you assurance that we're doing the very best we can but it, it is difficult in particular in some areas of northern ireland um, it, it is particularly difficult to get to get staff to fill posts and um, i mean the, the west is a very good example we, we have a lot of vacancies in the west and it's not because they're not trying really really hard in western trust it, it is just we, we don't have a workforce that's big enough and I mean, that, that brings back to the, work, the need for workforce review. We need to have that in place. So we know how, how many staff we need to train, how we can incent them coming from other jurisdictions and, and so on. So but that, that is work that is ongoing. I'm sure in relation to the question about the Health and Social Care Board. Sure, uh, Carol, you're right. But whenever that uh, organization ceases to exist, a lot of the, the key personnel will will still exist and certainly one of the key focuses that I've had over the past couple of weeks is just starting to develop those relationships certainly with Brendan Whittle who's the new director of mental health in the board and who's recently taken up post uh, to um, you know ensure that uh, we're on the same page or we're certainly where I understand exactly what's going on there as well but you can be assured that yes I will be an advocate internally in the Department for Mental Health in terms of making sure that um, it, it, its I suppose, prominence uh, is there uh, and again developing those relationships internally with those key senior folk in the department. Um, Sharon Gallagher and, and Co who will obviously be is in post at the moment and will retain responsibility for the board uh, just developing that 
relationship and understanding so that they understand exactly where we're coming from in, in the most uh, possible way that will maximize every effort that we can get funding resource into, into this area. Okay. All right, Carol. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I suppose actually uh, just just one maybe it might be Tomas. I'm not sure which which of you maybe could deal with this, but in relation to um, gambling addiction services, and I was taken aback a, a number of years ago prior to COVID nineteen an event in the Long Gallery had identified that one in ten I think and possibly higher of suicides are linked to gambling addiction. So are there any uh, are there any commissioned gambling addiction services and any plans to develop those further? Tomas or Peter? Peter, I don't know if you want to answer if I, if I answer here, but there, there, there are no specific gambling addiction services. Um, all trusts have generic addiction services that deals with uh, addictions of various kinds, which includes people with gambling addiction. Um, gambling addiction is a very serious thing, and I'm not in any way trying to minimize gambling addiction, but it's important we distinguish between gam addiction, uh, electric gambling, and problem gambling because they have fundamentally different sources and different reasons and how you deal with them are, are different. Um, people who have gambling addiction should very rightly receive appropriate addiction services, which you do provide. We don't have any statistics on gambling addiction across services or is our services for people with gambling addiction in Northern Ireland. Um, and, and that is something I know that the committee has highlighted to us in the past as, as something that we could improve on. Um, but I mean, there are services available for those who have gambling addiction. When it comes to problem gambling, we have to look at what causes the problem gambling. That is often not an addiction, but it has to do with the social determinants that, that uh, sits behind gambling. And that is something that also needs to be considered when um, gambling is considered society as a whole. So if, if you're, people are gambling because they have financial problems, that is probably not the mental health or addiction respo response. It is more how we cope with uh, difficult financial situations. And, and it's kind of a fine line between those two, but it's important that we don't um, put people into mental health services or addiction services that don't need that help and support because that will not will not help them. Um, so it's about getting the right response to the service without in any way minimizing the impact gambling has on people. So, so for the ones that do, in your argument, uh, Tomas, what 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 services are commissioned in that respect? They're generic addiction services in all trusts. Uh, within mental health services that will help and support those with addictions. Um, they're not specific on gambling, but exist for people with any addiction, and people with gambling addiction will be treated in those services. On top of that, of course, mental health services, people who struggle with addiction that leads to mental ill health, that mental health services will provide help and support for those people. Um, and we know there's a lot of people in our generic mental, or in our mental health services that where addiction is the cause of their mental ill health that's bringing provided help and support. Yeah, and, and indeed, I have I have worked with uh, addictions as part of my role as a social worker, and I have to say, I recognise what you're saying. Um, and and actually, those comorbidities of addiction and mental health issues, and indeed physical health issues, the lack of addiction services are then often used as a as or become a barrier to the other services. So if the addiction is not addressed, the the mental health uh, access is not available. So I think it's I think it's fundamental and. I'm not sure gambling gambling is is a quite a specific one. I'm not entirely convinced that that a, a generic service is meeting the needs best in in relation to that. So that might be something that's worth considering. I think it's a, a major and a growing issue and has become a growing issue over the pandemic alongside a, a host of other 
uh, physical and mental health issues. But um, I think that's something that maybe could be would would merit a further look. And I, I see I see Peter uh, noting that Peter, do you have anything there in relation to that issue? I have nothing further to add here to that to what Thomas has said. Um, it's something else that we we need to be aware of and 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 consider. Okay. Okay. So thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining our meeting this morning and for taking questions from members there. And also, I know that there's a commitment to forward some specific pieces of information, which uh, the committee look forward to receiving. But for now, good morning and thank you for attending. Thank, thank you. you. That's good. Thank you. Okay, members, um, I'm going to take a short break there then before we go back to our substantive uh, meeting. So I will 10.58 now, could we come back at, could we come back at 11.10? 10 past 11 to resume. Thank you, members. I'll see you then. And Clark, could you take us out of broadcasting? Sorry, Chair, just wait a confirmation. That's a slide now. Okay, thank you, members, and we will now resume um, resume our meeting this morning. Um, so, members, first of all, in terms of chairperson's business, I wanted to just uh, reflect on the fact that obviously we're putting a particular focus on mental health and mental health issues this week, and have arranged a significant program of engagement with with a number of groups across the week, um, and I think that's a really useful focus for us all. We did yesterday meet with the Mental Health Policy Group, which is made up of members of the Royal College of Psychiatry, INSPIRE, and um, Action Mental Health. I thought it was a really useful engagement in terms of people who are very, very acutely aware of the current issues and also potentially some of the some of the uh, solutions to some of those. But do members who are at the meeting want to want to make any comments in relation to that one? I'll go on to the meeting with the young people secondly, but for now, just in terms of the mental health policy group, does anyone um, want to, to make any comment? Chair, um, can I come in? Go ahead, Paula, please. Yeah. Thank you. Chair, I, I had to leave the meeting after an hour, but I find it really fascinating. I suppose there was nothing really new in it, but it really was it was very well um, put together by the um, the groups who came together. I suppose it's something we do have to continue to 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 work at because there was so much information there yesterday, and and uh, it's good that we focused on it today. But going forward, we once we come through the pandemic, we we need to keep coming back to this issue. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I thought so too. It was a really good. Uh, pulling together of a lot of the issues it, it was it was really useful in that sense and i think set the week up very very well in that respect the other the other meeting then that we did yesterday evening was with a group of young people who and, and uh, voipec nikki and youth action among others had facilitated that and, and the assembly outreach team and the clerk a really really good engagement as well i want to thank all of those people for organizing it i specifically want to want to thank uh, the young people who contributed across a couple of hours with us a very a very focused and a very personal session but also the fact that they and themselves are clearly experts by experience and were able to give us that perspective i thought was really really useful and i want to thank from that group last night deirdre destiny Aoife, the two lees uh, kira orla jamie dara troy 
Niall and Caelan, who uh, was facilitating a group of those young people. So just I thought it was I thought it was a really really good session, I have to say, and some fantastic comments, some fantastic ideas coming out of it. So again, um, our members, do members want to make any comment on that session last night? Chair, go ahead, Pam. Yeah. Chair, yes, just to say, yeah, huge thank you to um, the young people in particular and, and everybody else who, who who gave us their time last night. And it was very interesting to hear the, the, the different views from the young people and, and see how different those views actually were on, on some of the issues. So I thought it was very worthwhile and I, I just a uh, huge thanks to, to those young people for, for giving us their, their time and their thoughts on, on what has been a really pretty traumatic year, I think, for, for a lot of people. So that's good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for that, Pam. So moving on then, Dementia Action Week, uh, a tab 7.11 of this week pack members. There's correspondence from the Alzheimer's Society highlighting the fact that next week is Dementia Action Week. Members will have received that individually as well. And I would outline that there's a series of Zoom sessions being organized by the Alzheimer's Society next week, which members may want or may be able to avail of. Um, that'll be quite useful. Also, just to reflect on the on the autism motion, uh, I think it was useful focus in terms of and very very clear uh, cross party recognition of the difficulties that people who are struggling with with autism services are present. We're all acutely conscious of the COVID uh, element of that, um, but uh, I just I just want to reflect. I think it was a useful debate. It certainly doesn't solve anything in itself, but it puts a focus on what we need to do, and I think we we do need to keep a focus on this. I know, Pam, you're you're actively involved in, and, and brought a, an amendment to that as well. Do you want to make any comment on that, Pam? Yes, Chair, thank you. No, I thought it was a, a good debate too and, and probably quite timely in relation to the, the, the private members bill, which is in my name, but that's obviously because I'm the chair of the um, all-party group on autism. Um, but obviously that is a, is a private members bill, which is supported by all parties. And thank you for everybody who's involved in that. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's leading up nicely to the introduction of this private members bill, which we're hoping to see in the very near future. It's progressing very well with the with the drafters. So um, I think it, it, it will be a, a good piece of legislation going forward and hopefully we'll, we'll really strengthen the Autism Act, which is what we need uh, in, in order to ensure that um, you know, what was put in place back in uh, 2011 in terms of the Autism Act it actually becomes a reality for people on the ground. I think it's really important. Yeah. Thank you. Um, any other comment there from members on that before? No, okay, thank you. And finally then, just in relation to chairperson business today, I was looking to just highlight the, uh, the fact that, that I mentioned to the minister at the end, the fact that as of last Friday, the, uh, the the emergency regulations around children's visiting and social work and support had uh, the, the department had decided to revisit their decision to extend those and um, i think that was there was clearly concerns that the committee had engaged with across the sector and i think that's that's very much to be welcomed the reality the fact of the decision but also the uh the fact that that uh, the, the the department responded to what was clearly widespread significant and appropriate concerns so uh, any other comments from members in relation to that? I think members in broad agreement, so okay. Okay, thank you, members. So moving through then with draft minutes, uh, I refer you to draft minutes of the meeting of the 6th of May, which are tab 3.1. Are members content with those minutes? Yeah, thank you, members. And there are no matters arising from those.
So we can move now to our mental health, uh, a second briefing during our mental health awareness week focus. And the second briefing this morning is from the Children's Commissioner and the interim health champion, mental health champion. Um, I refer you members there to papers at tab six of your pack after the briefing paper at tab 6.4 of the table papers. So I would now like to welcome, um, and I think we have the, everyone online, but I'll, I'll just check with Clerk. Do we have the, uh, do we have Kula online? We Clerk? do indeed, Jeremy. Both the Commissioner and the Mental Health Champion are on, on call. Okay, I had seen Siobhan's name there, but I see Kula now as well. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, welcome Kula Yusuma. And Kula is the Commissioner uh, for Children and Young People. Good morning again, Kula. Uh, welcome back to Kamari. How are you? And can you hear us okay? Yes, uh, good morning, Chair. Uh, thank you very much. And yes, I can hear you very well. Thank you. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of feedback, but yes, I can hear you. Yeah, and I'm picking up on the feedback as well. If I could just ask all members to check that everyone is on mute who is not contributing at a, at a given time, and also if everyone has access to a headset, that's usually better. So uh, hopefully we can get that, that feedback issue identified there. And then very pleased to welcome again back to our committee uh, is Professor Siobhan O'Neill. And Professor O'Neill is the interim mental health champion. Good morning, Siobhan. Are you able to hear us okay? Good morning, Colm and everyone. Yes, yes, I can hear you all really well. And it's a pleasure to be here again on this lovely morning. Yeah, I do see I do see nice sunshine coming in, in the pictures there, which is which is always out. So um I'd 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 just hand over now to the two of yourselves. I'm not sure how you want to proceed there with doing the briefing, but if you want to to give us give us your briefings, your updates, and then we'll maybe get some questions and answers from members and yourselves. Is that okay? Okay. Siobhan, will I go first? Yeah, okay. Just just to demonstrate that we are a team this morning and, and, and really delighted uh, to be so. Um, so I just want to, because uh, I'm aware this is the uh, first time I, I've been before you um, since uh, February, February of last year. So I, I do have some opening remarks, brief um, opening remarks uh, for you, uh, Chair, if that's okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. bearing in mind, like as you've already said, the week that, that, that we're in, and 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 as we emerge from the pandemic, you know, we've been asked to brief you around children's mental health and well-being and the pandemic, and and obviously we'll we'll go a little bit broader than that. But there can be no doubt that the pandemic has had a significant impact on our children and young people, and not least, of course, their mental health and well-being. The closure of schools, academic uncertainty, having lost co less contact with their friends. Um, the disruption of routine, together with concerns about contracting the virus and also the health and, and well-being of their family members, are all likely to have either created or exacerbated existing mental health issues for many of our children. It's also critical that the impact of the pandemic um, is, is understood with regards to parental mental health and, and how that affects infants and, and young children's well-being and that, they, that we can have know what is called baby blind spots in the planning and, and delivery of policies and support for, for all our children and young people. But before I talk more, ge more generally, it's important to recognise the impact that the pandemic has had on remote learning and school closure on, on children's broader wellbeing. 
Um, during the pandemic, we've come to appreciate the significant role that our schools have, have in keeping a child who lives in a family which may be may become vulnerable to keep that child safe and well and out of the formal child protection and children in need system. And we await to see the evidence that, that the engagement with these families, um, the, we wait to see evidence with regards to the quality of engagement with vulnerable families during this, this second lockdown. Moving on to school restart. One young person described it as so much stress and not a lot of enjoyment. And restart has not been as we would have hoped for many of our children and young people, particularly um, with the perception of a reneging on the commitment to focus on their emotional well-being. There have been unacce unacceptable pressures placed on GCSE, AS and A-level students, and in some cases, those P6 who intend to take the transfer test. We really do need to reflect on how we could have done things differently, because clearly the way we did them was nowhere near good enough. Before the outset, before the onset of COVID-19, the mental health care system in Northern Ireland was under pressure and in need of urgent reform to respond to the scale and complexity of need. And, and, and um, I, I was um, able to listen to what the conversation you had earlier with the minister in the department. And this was a, 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 the overarching finding of our review into mental health services still waiting, which was published in 2018. And it continues to be our assessment that sufficient progress has not been made, particularly in relation to provisions for children and young people with additional needs, those with a learning disability, those who use substances, particularly drugs and alcohol. Um, and again, um, I, I note some of the discussions you had earlier. There's also disappointment uh, with regards to progress, which, some, which to a certain degree and to a large degree stems from the fact that there is a lack of measurement of tangible success. Process markers such as CALMS waiting lists, attendance at appointments and prescribing, prescribing rates are useful as key performance indicators. But critically, they don't tell us if children and young people's mental health and well-being are improved after receiving supports. And surely that has to be the primary goal and purpose of these services. The pre-COVID statistics indicate a worrying situation with respect to waiting times and access to support. The CALMS nine-week uh, waiting breach data between April 2020 and November, 2020, and November 2020 has decreased considerably, and we've, we've seen a slight increase um, since then. This data is confusing as it does not appear to reflect experiences that, ha that have been shared with us by young people and their families who have expressed frustration at not being able to access timely support. And this is an example of a need for further and, and to delve deeper into the overall referral rates, acceptance rates, a number of active clients across the health and social care trusts. And we need to have a better understanding of the changes and, and the way the services have changed during the pandemic. Again, I know um, that your earlier discussion with, with regards to investment, and I'm not going to re-rehearse re the debate about the chronic underinvestment in children's mental health services in Northern Ireland. And whilst I welcome our, our system's commitment to raise the spend from 7.4% to 10% of the mental health budget, I'm not really sure that there's evidence to indicate that this is the right aspiration. Surely before we decide how much is needed, we must first understand the effectiveness uh, and efficacy of the money that we are spending and then scope what is required and decide how much more money is necessary. 
rather than simply benchmarking what is happening on spend, in, in spend in other jurisdictions when we know those jurisdictions underinvest. Because you can, you can um, really, I could predict quite easily it's going to be more than 10%. So there's been, a, there, there's been several significant policy and strategy developments over the last year, which have focused on children and young people's mental health and emotional well-being. And these include, and I'm going to list them because it's important to understand how crowded this landscape is. Some of these include our own still waiting action plan, the mental health action plan, the pending substance, abuse, uh, substance use strategy, the emotional health and well-being and education framework, the children and young people's emotional health and well-being services framework. As you can see, it's becoming quite crowded and a possibly confusing landscape, and some work needs to be undertaken under the umbrella of the, uh, of the pending mental health strategy to ensure an integrated and coherent set of actions and one that takes a holistic approach to need. And additionally, there needs to be really clear connections to the children and young people strategy. And, and all of that just demonstrates how critical we need to, it is for us to have a holistic approach uh, to our children's mental health and the critical role that our education system has in the well-being of our children. A lot of the mental health issues caused by the pandemic and beyond can be addressed if effective partnership exists across all sectors and systems and that children and young people get early um, services, particularly in, in generic settings such as education. Therefore, I would ask that this committee considers um, a, a piece of joint working with the Education Committee so that the scrutiny of government remains consistent. I do want to quickly mention mental health legislation um, and particularly the Mental Capacity Act. And as you'll be aware, that, that this is a significant legislative development that fuses mental capacity and mental health law for those aged, aged 16 and over. And this is the issue. It denies young people under 16 access to protections and safeguards under the Act. And there still do remain some issues with regards to 16 and 17 year olds, although I hope a, a recent Supreme Court judgment may have resolved that. Also, we, we still don't know when the Mental Health Order of 1986, which will remain as a primary piece of legislation for under 16s, is going to be reviewed and updated in, in order to ensure it complies with key human rights requirements. I was really pleased to hear how well your engagement with young people went yesterday, um, yesterday evening, and, and I'm, 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 I'm glad that and the delight that the committee did that, because it, I do want to say that engagement with young people by our government um, has been wholly unsatisfactory during the pandemic. And we have seen young people um, take to social media to make sure that their voices are aired and heard, and they have been spectacular in doing that. But there continues to, to be a need for government at all levels to develop mechanisms to meaningfully engage and consult with children and young people. I can't tell you how pleased I am by the plans um, uh, for a Northern Ireland Youth Assembly because I really do believe they it, it's a progressive step. And what I'm really um, looking forward to hearing about is how this committee, very, uh, based on what you heard yesterday, how you will continue to work with young people and embed them into your work. So you'll be pleased to know I'm coming to an end. So in conclusion, the pandemic um, will have in, uh, intensified existing health inequalities, again, as you've heard, and it's really important that we fully understand what this means for the lives of our children so that we can ensure that steps are taken to meet their needs in both the immediate and longer term. And, and to that end, my office will in the summer publish a report on the impact of COVID-19 on our children and young people across a range of issues and make clear recommendations as to the way forward. 
I do want to say, and and um, I I'm glad that uh, some of the committee recognised the passion of our current minister with regards to mental health and wellbeing, and there has been a significant shift in attitude and commitment to improve the mental health and wellbeing of our infants, our children, and our young people. However, it's the achieving of that change in a sustain in a sustainable way that remains our biggest challenge. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Kula. Uh, thank you for that. And to go then across to Siobhan. Siobhan, do you want to give us a few opening remarks? Yes, please. Um, yeah, I've got some some remarks here. So thank you so much for this opportunity to, pro to provide evidence again. And I also want to take this chance to thank the Department of Health for their engagement over recent months. Um, I want to focus today on the, the draft mental health strategy and particularly the actions that impact on the mental health of children and young people. So prior to the pandemic, one in eight of our young people had a mood or anxiety disorder. And as usual, our young people have a, high, have a higher rate of mental health problems and emotional difficulties in the regions, and that's about 25% higher than other parts of the UK. The restrictions that were necessary to control the pandemic, particularly the school closures, will have led to a further increase. We are talking here about suffering that is preventable and treatable, and this is something that we need to address very urgently. Action 1 in the strategy is a plan for promoting mental health through early intervention and prevention. This plan must be a cross-departmental plan and should emphasise primary prevention. So primary prevention means stopping mental health problems before they occur. In other words, a whole society, whole system approach to foster resilience and to address risk and protective factors. The 2010 Marmont Review, The Fair Society, Healthy Lives, is a guide to what we need to do. And this is about giving every child the best start in life, enabling young people and adults to maximise their capabilities and have control over their lives, fair employment, good work, a healthy standard of living and healthy and sustainable communities. Childhood adversities are the main preventable risk factors for mental illness across the lifespan. Therefore, this action plan needs to include a plan to reduce childhood adversities. The recent prevalence study, which we need to be using to, um, to plan our mental health and other services, shows us that 48% of our young people suffered adversities. Now, not all adversities have a negative impact, but adversities like parental mental illness, which is 10.7%, emotional neglect, 5.7%, domestic violence, 4.4%, they increase the risk of illness in later life and they are avoidable. The research and data are crucial and we need continued surveillance of adversities and mental illness in children and young people. And that means more psychiatric prevalence studies to measure the changes over time. That's how we're going to know that this part of the strategy has been effective. The reduction of mental health inequalities needs to be a core principle of the, strat of the strategy because of the strong associations between mental health and deprivation in Northern Ireland and the high rates of mental illness in marginalised groups here. That means improving access to a choice of services and support services through schools, community and voluntary sector and through the expanded talking therapy hubs. And in recognition of the relational factors that strongly influence young people's mental health, these hubs need to include a range of therapies um, such as family psychotherapy and play therapy. 
The action needs to drive a conversation across society about what mental illness is and what it isn't. And we need to co-design a shared understanding, a definition of mental health, illness and recovery that we could then draw upon and use whenever we're planning, whenever we're having public conversations. We must raise awareness and understanding of the importance of the early years infant attachment and early relationships and developing the coping emotional regulation and problem solving skills which we need to prevent mental illness. This should be taught to future parents, child de development, attachment theory, parenting strategies, they should be part of the curriculum. Recognition needs to be given to the importance of play, sports, arts, drama, as well as the additional difficulties faced by disabled children, children and children with a learning disability. Mental and physical health are interrelated, our bodies and brains are part of the same system and we need more recognition of the importance of lifestyle factors like diet, exercise, sleep and good quality relationships on children's well-being and mental health. The strategy should point to all of these issues and recognise the need for cross-departmental cooperation and the involvement of primary care and the statutory and the community and voluntary sectors to address them. The strategy doesn't include actions that are specific to third level students and yet we know that the transition to college and university is associated with increased stress and high rates of suicidal thoughts and behaviours. Um, just reporting from a recent study that I'm doing in my university role, 26% of the students reported suicidal ideation and 16% in, in um, of the students they had this in the year prior to going to university. Anxiety, and that was prior to the pandemic as well, actually. Anxiety-related mental illnesses emerge in early adolescence. However, late adolescence is the time when we will see the onset of symptoms of depression. And early treatment there means that we can prevent comorbidities such as substance use and other disorders, and we can reduce the impact on education and employment outcomes. Consideration needs to be given to the expansion of student mental health services with clear links to the university and college wellbeing services. And the strategy needs to specify that colleges and universities can have pathways to mental health services in the statutory and the community and voluntary sector. Universities and further education colleges need to be equipped to achieve this whole institution approach to mental health and support and services. Action four in the strategy is enhanced and accessible mental health services. And this should include early introduction, or sorry, early intervention for, for young people who are engaging in behaviours that are characteristic of dysregulation, such as self-harm and aggression. I would propose that psychological consultation and supervision is available for health visiting services and for other groups who are working with, with young people and children and children in the early years so that they can identify the early signs of difficulties and offer appropriate support. Action 6 supports accessibility and promotes this no wrong door approach. But mental health inequality are relevant here too, as is the need for a trained and culturally competent workforce. It's important that CAM services are located in non-stigmatizing facilities so that we can improve access. And there needs to be outreach into marginalized communities so that the services are accessible to people who identify as LGBT+, travelers and children and young people who are in contact with the justice system, children who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. 
And we also need to include digital access as an important element of this action um, and address digital poverty because that could be a barrier that's to be addressed. Again, pointing to the need for a cross-departmental plan. Crisis intervention services that are accessible for children and young people are required urgently. These services need to be trauma-informed, and that means compassionate interventions and collaboration with emergency services, as well as the community and voluntary sector, who are doing a lot of great work in terms of crisis provision. They should be accessible to young people who have used and used substances and people with a learning disability. Uh, Co-production is vital to understand the models that work and why particular models aren't so effective with this group. Um, so it's great to hear about the engagement that, that's already happening. Young people tell us that they want confidential, non-stigmatizing walk-in services in the community and services that they can access through their mobile devices. The links between crisis services and mental health services need to be seamless. Again, the no wrong door approach is absolutely central. Um, finally, and, and actually to mirror what, what the Children's Commissioner has just said, I worry that we're placing far too much emphasis on accessing services rather than focusing on the experience of young people when they do receive services and the outcomes for them. I was very moved by the comments from Dr. Claire McCauley following her recent study of young people's experiences of mental health services. And I'm going to end with, with, with this. Young adults describe being on waiting lists for very long periods of time only to get access to services and find the experience demoralizing, disengaging and despairing. They acknowledge they often struggle to find the emotional language to describe their difficulty creating a significant communication barrier. They wanted to talk to someone, but when they did, they did not feel heard or understood in their crisis. We must do better. Thank you. Thank you, Professor O'Neill, and thank you, Commissioner, as well. Um, so uh, reflecting just on, on the meeting last night with, with, with the young people and many of the issues that they raised uh, have have now come up today again so it just demonstrates how on the money those young people are in relation to what what the problems are it's our second significant engagement with young people um our previous one was in relation to the whole the, around the children's regulations the covid regulations um and and that too was raised last night and i think we are probably all pleased that the department has decided now as of last friday those will not be proceeding any further and i think that's that's to be welcomed um the, I, I, I do share I do share the concern around the whole issue of data and outcomes and that and I mean we are all on the same page about what the problems are and largely what the what what many of the solutions are but there there is a lack of detail around how we're going to get to the outcomes what the outcomes even are 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 wanting are wanted to be and how we're going to measure those and I think that's that's something that we really need to get to grips with it, it cuts across into physical health as well but it's clearly cuts into mental health and in particular in relation to health inequalities so it's and mental health inequalities so it's no longer it's no longer I think acceptable to just list out the problems we need to be underpinning those with with the solutions and the planning to take us at least some way towards that. We're not expecting anyone to come up with a, a magic solution overnight, but 
just an example, when, when we when we were speaking with officials last week around inequalities and we asked for what the measurement and the outcomes were, we referred to the feedback forms. You know, and that's why the feedback forms are, are important. They're superficial to an extent. We need to see the actual outcomes. Are we spending the right money or the right resources? Is it delivering the right outcome? And how do we learn and improve and make the system better as we go forward? So I think those those are those are areas that we certainly uh, we certainly agree. And I think we're putting an increasing uh, focus in the committee in terms of around that whole data collection, how that's being used, how that's measured going forward. Um, the other the other one I wanted to pick up on Kula, and you had mentioned there um, was and it came up very strongly last night and very articulately by the young people last night. So I welcome the opportunity to 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 raise that today with you, uh, both of you, in in relation to your role. But maybe Kasuma, uh, yeah, in in the first instance reneging on exam commitments and it was very clear that, that is the case now and while that is an education issue largely the impact of it is health and we're seeing the impact of it on health so in relation to that Kula what are you particularly at, the, at this present time how are you engaged in relation to addressing that issue or what what can be done to try to uh, to try to deliver on the commitment rather than allowing it to be reneged upon uh, uh, thanks for that for that question. I just tweeted, ask me any question. Um, I didn't mean ask me really hard questions, but um, I think that's a, a really important issue. And and I I think and I and I will hold my hat hands up and say I was not prepared for the level of testing that our young people were subjected to, the speed by which it happened as well. It happened so quickly after they came back, um, some in the first week, but certainly for most of them after Easter. And also how quickly um, some schools went straight into exam mode with the sort of exam timetable um, uh, that, that would have been pre-COVID, i.e. you only come in when you have a test to do. And so that didn't uh, give the opportunity for many of our schools and our teachers to actually connect with the young person and find out what was going on for them. And, and now the, the issue is, um, Chair, is that now most of them are finished. Most of them are done and dusted and are at home and have finished for the school year. Uh, certainly our, our GCSE and A-level students, our, our AS students have gone back in, but our GCSE and A-level students have finished. And I and I have tried and and uh, to engage and ask for schools to come up with a program. Now we we will have heard of, this, of some schemes um, that have been funded and set up, um, and I'm hoping that a lot of those will reach out to certainly our our year what we call year twelve, those who are going into sixth form next year. And I'm hoping, and well, I'm not hoping we will be advising that there should be bespoke programs for them but i i have been disappointed um by the way this was all set up we are now having those conversations with regards to appeals and after the grades have happened um so it, it to make sure that we're not in the same mess that we were last year and the young people believe they they were treated fairly what i do want to say is that we because of how quickly this happened i did make the decision that we wouldn't try and stop it because we we felt it might be dis, more destabilizing for our young people to to change a process midstream and i want to uh bear i just say how how in awe i am of our children of our young people who have stepped up and who have done what has been asked of them 
And I hope to goodness that everyone recognizes that and doesn't mark them down for those for those stress. So in the post in the in the appeals process, if they have been stressed um, and it has affected their performance in these assessments, then um, we we will look to support them to make sure their their experiences are heard. I can only apologize that this 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 happened so quickly and say we did everything we could to try and get schools to, to reverse and, and, and take a more measured approach to using, to gathering evidence. But so many of them went to these tests and um, I, think, I think they should be called exams because that's exactly where they were because many children set them in exam conditions. Um, and can I, um, so uh, I, I don't have a, a great answer for you. What I do have is we need to reflect uh, what this has done has, um, and, and what, ha what happened with transfer last year means we have to reflect on what our education system thinks is important because academics of uh, subjects and academic learning and achievement is important, but it's not the only purpose of our education system. And we need to maybe, uh, and I've been recommending this for almost six years, have a, a well-being measure that each school has to report on in the same way they do with academic attainment so that we learn to value both issues. And just very quickly on your first point around outcomes, you're absolutely right. And um, we published, uh, we, we looked at all the CALMS data that was published and approximately in 2019-2020, in, um, in um, 42% of our young people left, left our CALM system with their goal not achieved, um, either not achieved, partially achieved, or the, or, or the young person um, disengaged from the service. That's not good enough. That's not, the, uh, uh, that's not what I would call an effective service. Now, we need to understand what that means, but you're absolutely right around outcomes data. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kula. Um, and and it, it it was it was very clearly uh, an issue, and I have to say, there's also huge issues of inequalities there because how are they assessing the impact of lack of access to broadband from rural kids, children of frontline workers, maybe who didn't get the same support? Like there are so many potential inequalities here to to uh, to to add to the testing mix. And I think you're right. I think we do because again. There's an old adage in business, and I was in business for many years, what gets measured gets done. So if we Absolutely. don't measure well-being, then are, are, we, are we really moving towards it? So we have to, we have to understand what we value and measure what we value and, and, and plan for it. Absolutely. So thank you. Siobhan, Siobhan the second one is, is for you, and it's again emerging from, from the young people that we spoke with last night and met with last night. And it's relation to access to counselling and support and things like that there. And some of them raised the, the benefit of that being in schools. Others, others mentioned that youth clubs would be a setting where they thought there was some potential to engage young people. And others still made the point, and very, very accurately, I thought, and very uh, wisely, that not everybody goes to youth clubs either. And they were wondering, is there potential within schools and within other settings? So I'm just wondering, Javon, uh, what's your views on that? Or is there, any, uh, is there anything within the planning that will 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 lead? And I'm also conscious of, in our previous session, where we talked about walk-in walk -in availability in communities through, uh, through you know, a, a, that, that no wrong door, that we have a door within communities people walk. So could you outline what you think could be... Uh, is being done on that or can be done to improve access? 
Okay, so there's a lot of there's a lot of initiatives that, that are helping improve access. I think the text and nurse scheme that the Department for Education launched a number of weeks ago was very helpful there. I think the, the need that young people have is for immediate support when they perceive that they're in a time of crisis and they call it a crisis. Um, and that's what they want it to be identified as. So the text and nurse scheme, very useful. I think we should really be expanding the whole digital health um, action in that mental health strategy. Um, we could be using digital technology in more novel ways, although we do need to consider the access issues there and, and digital poverty. But young people use their mobile devices and they live their lives sometimes through those devices. So those devices, um, we need to be exploiting that in order to um, help them access mental health services. Um, the school vision is being improved right now and I think it's very helpful that we're moving towards counselling in schools although recognising that the term counselling might perhaps be inappropriate because in many cases we're talking here about play therapy for the younger children and family therapy, recognising that the child and young person's mental health is hugely influenced by the family that's around them and the relationships within that family and for that reason I've also recommended that the talking therapy hubs include family therapies and even relationship therapies because you know we talked about childhood adver adversities and the number one adversity um, that our young people experience is parental separation um, and that's not always and, and needn't be a negative adversity it can be a way of modeling negotiation conflict resolution all of those things but you know parents need to be um, equipped with the skills to manage that process so that it doesn't have a detrimental impact on young people's mental health so the talking therapies uh, the hubs are another potential route through which young people can access mental health services. Um, the community, the youth sector, absolutely huge area there that could be expanded. The crisis cafe model is an excellent example there of something that's working really well to provide support for children and young people. And I think even support for children and young people before they access the formal child and adolescent mental health services so that they're equipped to describe their emotional pain so that they're prepared to undergo that treatment process would be very, very useful and maybe would reduce the, the numbers and the proportions there that are accessing services and feel that the services aren't meeting their needs. Um, and in relation to an earlier point, I think we do need to define recovery and start to try and measure recovery. And thankfully, that's in the strategy. It's supposed to be a recovery-orientated strategy, but that, that does pose a challenge. How do you measure recovery? We're used to measuring sessions delivered, treatment completed, six sessions, all of these types of things. So how do we measure recovery in a meaningful way? And how do we do that wraparound care? Because treatment is only one part of recovery. We, we need to promote um, th those social networks, those social structures that actually mean that young people can develop and flourish following uh, treatment for a mental health problem. So even uh, access to recovery colleges or that type of model for children children and young people will be very, very beneficial in addition to the formal services. So not all of this is going to be done in the statutory sector. The community and voluntary sector are absolutely crucial providers here. So there's an action within the strategy about the integration of the community and voluntary sector and the creation of a single regional mental health service. And that must be um, delivered very, very quickly in, in the term of the strategy so that all of this can function appropriately for children and young people. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. So I'm going to go then to members. So I have Paula, Pam and Carol indicating at this stage. So I'll go firstly to Paula there. Go ahead, Paula, please. 
Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, ladies, for coming along this morning. Um, I suppose my first question is to follow on from what you've just mentioned there, Siobhan, in terms of um, the impact of um, divorce and separation on children. Um, last night, um, a group, a UK-wide group, um, launched the Parents' Promise, but nobody saw it on Channel 4 News, and that was really about those conversations, you know, just in case we separate. So just wanted to see if you could expand maybe a little bit more in terms of how you think the um, children are impacted since we've seen a huge rise in separation through COVID and even more practical steps in terms of how the young people can be supported either in school or in a community setting. So that's my first question. Thank you. Okay, so so one of the first things I did um, when I received the copy of the prevalence study with the 35% figure is ask the researchers to do reanalysis of adversities, but taking that as an adversity out because of, of the wealth of evidence now that shows that, that that's actually a very common experience and it can have a very, very positive impact for young people. So, I mean, defining this as an adversity, I have difficulty with that um, for, for starters, you know, and I think it also makes me think about a study we did of college students, of university students at our own university where we found that actually the group of students who had zero no adversities were actually at moderate risk of having a mental health problem and and it seemed that they didn't have the resilience and coping skills to deal with the ups and downs of life and the, and the problems that that university that that transition brought so i think we, we need to move away from the idea of all adversities as being negative um and we need to recognize that that relationship breakup separation management, negotiating conflict, this is all part of life and we need to embed these skills um, from a very, very, very young age and model them. So it's about the rupture and repair work that we do with our toddlers um, to show them that, yes, there's there's always conflict, but it's how we repair that conflict and what we do. And that needs to start, as I say, it needs to start in the early years and needs to be um, developed all the way through um, the, the curriculum at school. And then, of course, families need that support. And I want to see it in solicitors' offices. I know Relate are doing great work there, but the place where you go when your when your relationship and your marriage is breaking up as a solicitor, you know. So I want this across society a recognition of the importance of relationships, but also the importance of managing those conflicts um, and negotiating and all of those things. And it also helps in terms of peace building. Um, so what we're building here is a generation of young people who are able to negotiate problems, who can deal with conflict and can and can work round conflict and prepare solutions and that's what we need going forward to make Northern Ireland a more peaceful place. So this is benefits and pays dividends across society. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I suppose you say a lot of it ends up in the in the solicitors and then in the courts of these protracted acrimonious separations. And I suppose we're making our children deal with adult issues. And so yeah, I totally agree. Intervention earlier on is far better. Um my, my second question um is to you, Kula, and that's really around the issue I raised with the minister there around eating disorders and I suppose some of the parents have come to me um, it was off the back of their, their their girls in particular who were very sporty they then weren't allowed to do any sport because of COVID put a wee bit of weight on and then you know things started spiraling all the other stuff so I'm just wondering as we come through COVID what you know what can we be doing in terms of wrapping back up the sort of links between mental and physical health and if you think that there's enough being done not just within the department of health but right across department of communities and education to ensure in particular young girls who fall out of sport that they do see it as a very valuable way of protecting their mental health as well as physical health 
I think uh, you're absolutely right. There's been um, a, a lot of talk about, and, and quite rightly, about mental health and emotional well-being. Um, but it, it is it is absolutely right. I, I actually this morning as I, I drove in, I'm in the office. I was thinking, God, Kula, your spirit is uplifting. That's because over the last three days, I've managed to get out on my on my daily walks, and that's just me, a middle aged woman, just just you know getting out on, on my day. It gives me excuse to eat more chocolate. But do, 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 do you know what I mean? So we do have to remember, particularly in this weather, but any weather, that sport and that it is it is not about one thing. That we, if we're going to be happy, we we need to be holistically happy. It's we need to we need to tend to all of all of ourselves um, um, and, and be healthy and well. The eating disorder, specifically the eating disorder piece, is actually very worrying. Um, and um, there, we do need to up our game in Northern Ireland with regard, particularly with regards to uh, quickly accessing services, but also um, finding a way that we can. Um, and make sure that in our schools and in our in our services in our generic generic services that, that people do understand what needs to be done when, when a child is experiencing uh, an eating disorder but also that um in our acute services um you, you know in our hospital services that we are also we, we support those services to be able to better respond to those young people but and and you you talked about girls but also we know there's quite a hidden issue with boys um, because when we think eating disorder, we think girls and and, and the, the figures demonstrate that that is an issue uh, with, with girls, but also that we know it is quite hidden for boys and we need we need to bring that out in the open as well so that there is a piece of work to be done there. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Okay. Thank you, Paula. I'm going then to Pam. Go ahead, Pam, please. So I'm not there. I think I've seen. Okay, Pam, go ahead. Yeah. No, it takes a wee minute too for that system to allow you to unmute. Um, thank you, ladies. Thank you uh, for your attendance, and, and I just want to say from the outset that really do appreciate the uh, the work, the good work that you're doing, and um, how you're advocating for children and young people, and those with mental health problems right across our society. So thank you for that. I have a question for each of you um, today, um, and the first one's for Kula, and it's. I mean, obviously, there are there are going to be really difficult constraints within the budgets, but I wanted to ask you around the still waiting recommendations, and could you tell us which um, which parts of those recommendations or recommendations do you believe to be prioritised as part of the recovery and rebuild um, post COVID? Uh, thanks, Pam. You're asking me to choose between my many, many children with uh, with still waiting, um, and um, I find that quite difficult to do. But I, I, I suppose um, we we have, as it sits at the moment, we have 33% of the recommendations of still waiting still in red, um, and so they're the ones that that would worry us the most. Um, and it's not always about money, Pam, to, to, to be honest, it's not always about money. It's it's sometimes about changing our mindset. So it's attitudes. So, so one of the recommend one of the things that we do need to progress on is the pathway that young people go on if they feel they need additional supports and services. 
and we've, we've we've already talked about they don't all need to go into child and adolescent you know the statutory health services um and that sometimes that's seen as the only route and and they, and the use of the gp in, in that process can sometimes be problematic because the gps don't always have the training or the skills or the knowledge to be able to understand where they when they can refer back into the community into the community and voluntary sector and generally refer on into calms and that 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 is a pivotal point that pathway um so that i am concerned that that hasn't progressed the way it should i'm really uh, concerned um at the lack of progress as i said in in my introduction with regards to children uh with learning disabilities and, and disabilities and also with children who use substance substances and we know particularly for those young people that they, they they're almost self-medicating so you know we we need to find a way forward for them i was interested in in what the minister said about a, a mental health trust i think it's certainly an interesting proposal but for, for for services like this for for children who have particularly learning disabilities and a mental health issue but also um uh, a drug and alcohol misuse i think we do need to have a regional support because the the disparity in services across northern ireland are are extremely worrying and um and, and i suppose the other thing is the uh, as uh, siobhan has already said the the ability to access services earlier uh, and and quicker in the community and and a proper partnership with our voluntary and community sector and with our education system is absolutely critical because we need to prevent young people becoming so poorly that they need calms and what we know is as a very vibrant voluntary and community sector and also um so that that needs to be shored up and that proper partnership and my final final thing again to reiterate what siobhan has said is um primary schools we need a bespoke age appropriate range of interventions that children and families can access in primary schools and, and and i think we need to move away from using the language of primary school counseling because that's not necessarily the model we want to talk about uh, about these wee ones um but we want something that is is appropriate and and that, that can bring in the whole family and then fi oh, God, i said finally already haven't i but finally finally really looking forward to seeing how the the perinatal um uh, strategy and services uh, uh uh work through and how they're implemented because again that will very neatly fit into the early intervention process so that's off the top of my head um some of the issues that we really need to progress on as well as all the data um work that so that we better have a better understanding Brilliant. i hope that answers your question pam it does. Thank, thank you, Kula. And, and Siobhan, for, for you, I suppose, on a very similar vein, um, given the, the budgetary climate, um, where do you believe funding should be prioritised within children and young people's mental health services to have that maximum strategic benefit? Okay, it's, it's a great question and it, it's very real because that, that's the world we're living in. There there are restrictions and as Kula said earlier, it's not it's not necessarily about funding, it's about using the money that we have in a better way. Um and, and so I think that action one for the um mental for the plan for early intervention and prevention, I think that needs that the plan itself is not going to cost so much. The implementation of the plan um may well cost more, but that should that needs to be done straight away and it needs to be cross departmental. 
And then in terms of services, we're already reviewing crisis intervention services, so that should happen very quickly. But I think making sure that those services are accessible to children and young people and improving the crisis support services for children and young people, um, they, they are easy wins that will prevent the escalation of mental health problems uh, further down the line. Because often when we're talking about a crisis, we're not necessarily talking about a mental illness. We're talking about a life event. We're talking about an opportunity for um, uh, helping a young person find a way of managing and developing coping skills and developing that resilience that's going to serve them well. So if we can respond appropriately at the time of a crisis, then we are setting children and young people up for good mental health and good coping and problem solving skills. So those are the two things. The the changes that, that are in the framework for education are also really important and we need to be moving on those so that we are helping young people recognize the difference between stress and mental illness, making them more self-aware developing those problem solving skills again none of the stuff is very very expensive but it will be so important in preventing mental illness further down the line thank you very much thank you thanks chair thank you pam and thank you Kula and uh, siobhan and i'm going then to carolyn Cullen, and then i have our leah flynn indicating and that's that's the indications i have at present so i'll go back to yourself there carol go ahead let it so thank you very much to both of you, not just for being here this morning, but just for your ongoing advocacy and on behalf of some very vulnerable people, to be honest. The thing I find really frustrating is, and it's, it's going to sound like a contradiction, on one hand there now is an action, a mental health action plan, but on another there's a lot of strategies floating around and it's trying to tie up where their priorities are. So I found this morning, um, my experience has been very negative and I can't see that changing and that worries me. Um, I'm seeing um, talking therapy hubs, you know, being contracted out. And so it's, it's about the contract rather than where the needs are and then wrapping the contract around that. So that hasn't happened. And I really think that needs to change. Um, so that's just your thoughts on that. Secondly, I completely agree with both of you in terms of the need to look at the needs and then what funding is needed after that. Um, and, and I haven't heard that happening either, despite not, it hasn't happened. And Siobhan, you'll be more than familiar with this, and I've no doubt or Leah Flynn will be talking about it because she's actually championed it. The issue around crisis intervention is really urgent, and I'm not seeing that highlighted and promoted in the way it needs to be. So we had an incident on Monday in the, in the Royal Emergency Department. Now, a lot of the people went to their GPs. Monday's the worst day for EDs. But you had youngsters sitting there in mental health crisis and they, wait, they, they just leave them thinking they'll sober up and a lot of them are getting up and walking out. I can't get them to engage. They've lost all hope and whenever they do get services, I would go as far as to say at least two of the families I'm dealing with were traumatised as a result of the services. And I know it's not the intention of people to do that, but it wasn't what they needed. Um, and unless we very quickly make that urgent 
then I, I, I don't believe hardly that these issues are going to change. I really don't. And I, and I completely agree with you in terms of play intervention and that, because I'm now seeing three generations in Belfast were very young children are very anxious. I'm talking about three, four-year-olds are very anxious because of the anxiety that's been and the trauma that's been intergenerational. And they don't need to go through a statement of progress. They need talked, they need supported, they need helped. So it's just how we're going to get these issues. If you agree that they are, how are we going to get the minister or ministers to actually take them as urgent issues and act upon them more importantly? Thank you. Oh my goodness. Uh, 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 right. Okay. I knew that. I knew you would ask. These are really deep, deep-seated uh, issues that need to be addressed. So, so if, if, if we go with the more, not with the more simple, straightforward one, which is around when we did still waiting, we found over thirty-one million pounds was spent on children's mental health and wellbeing services across ninety-three services across a range of sectors and systems. And you're absolutely right. Those services could all talk about the numbers of young people attending um, and, and what intervention was offered, but they weren't as good as they could have been around what was the outcome achieved. How did we move? How did we move? So you're absolutely right. If we're serious about outcomes, we need to be serious about understanding what those outcomes look like. And, and, and then that talks to we need to be joined up. So we've had in this last week, and I know Siobhan agrees with me because we had this conversation um, earlier in the week. In this last week, we've had quite a number of announcements about additional monies for various services. And particularly over the summer, which is fantastic, absolutely fantastic, because you've just heard me say some for some young people's schools finished too soon. But I'm really worried now that we now have uh, the councils doing things, voluntary and community sectors doing things, Youth services, youth, uh, the EA youth service doing things, and our schools are doing things. Now that there is quite possibly a need for all of them to do things, but where is the overarching mechanism? Where is where is somebody in 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 a, in a room or in a community with those communities going right? What's going on over the summer? What is it you need, and and how are we going to draw it down? So this, and and again, this is another mantra. This one community, one plan is really, really important that we understand what's going on. Um, uh, Carol, and and, the, and and you're absolutely right also. Northern Ireland, and in lots of places, we're really good at action plans and we're really good at strategies. Um, and then we breathe a sigh of relief when it's done because now we know what we've got to do. But that is, that is less than 10% of the work. 90% of the work is getting the job done. And I don't underestimate the challenges, particularly in our health sector as we come out of COVID. Not enough money, huge weight in this. Adult social care is on its knees, and we've just seen how on its knees it is, and it needs massive investment and support. Um, and so do our children's services. And, and, and I, I don't envy the job, but at least we need to start by understanding where, where we're at. And that we, what, the money that we spend currently is spent, is spent well, and and I'm not sure what more can be done unless we can get a government that understands is on the same page as this and actually works together and isn't talking about this is what I achieved in my bit of the house is is able to say as nine departments 
this is what we've achieved as the government of Northern Ireland with and for the people of Northern Ireland and um, including our children and young people. Now, these sound really aspirational, but it's not, it's not that difficult to have one, um, one, one outcome or a, a shared of, of outcomes as we're planning with the programme for government and then putting, putting the money together that we're, we're spending across the different, the different agencies and different services and saying, right, how are we going to achieve um, uh, give, ma making sure our children get the best start in life? What does that actually mean and how do we achieve it? And communities, put your money in the pot. Education, put your money in the pot. Justice, well, actually, justice, get out of the game. But anyway, put your money in the pot. Health, put your money in the pot. And let's do this together. We need to stop making this about individual services and individual departments and start making this about the whole government for the whole population. Yeah. Okay, can I compare sure. just on to being more specific? Sorry, sorry, Colin, is that all right? Um, I, I wanted to respond to the um, to the, the the strategy that I think we're at a time now where we have a draft strategy and we're waiting the final version and a lot of things um, are kind of put in hold until we get that. I've been assured by the Department of Health and the Minister that the final version of the strategy is going to be available very soon, um, probably around July time, and that that's going to come along with an implementation plan. And that's where the role of a mental health champion is really going to be important and monitoring the actions within the implementation plan. So that will set out and, and certainly there'll be year on year actions. It won't be achieving everything, but there are things that need to happen straight away in terms of reorganizing the system. And then we can start to do the, to make the changes to particular elements of the mental health services. Um, so we need the workforce planning. We need the uh, mental health service. We need the integration of the community involved sector we need those sorts of actions straight away and then we will be able to hopefully see the changes to the services that will make them better and there will be groups then that will be driving forward the actions within the implementation plan so i'm hoping that 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 should the the, the benefits there should be seen very quickly in terms of crisis services that is very urgent and just this morning i've asked for an update on the review of crisis services to find out where we are when that uh, team will be reporting and what they'll be recommending um, and certainly the need is to go beyond the de-escalation um, and it's supposed to be de-escalation it's not supposed to be traumatizing it's supposed to be de-escalation and that's not what's happening but that one-off de-escalation is not a suicide prevention model suicide prevention model is where you introduce safety plan and follow-up um, and the Scottish system that I keep pointing to distress brief intervention Scotland um, provides 14 days of continuous follow-up for people who present in a crisis we need something similar here. The community and voluntary sector are a crucial element of that, as is the training of our emergency services and the staff within emergency departments, so that we don't have this revolving door where people present again and again in a time of crisis and don't receive the care and the follow-up and the, the support that, that they need. So all of that's crucial. The mental health uh, strategy, the final version, will also be published with a funding plan. And I know that they're working right now on that and they're using models from other jurisdictions to be um, the the funding the the, um, the the indicative cost of each of the each of the actions so that should come along with the strategy and then we need to demand 
from the government that there's money for this and it won't be found within health it's going to have to come from other places so we're going to have to have a big conversation there and other things are going to have to be set aside while we focus on this knowing that by investing in mental health and 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 by investing in early intervention and crisis intervention that we will be creating a healthier um a healthier population and we will reduce the demand and reduce the cost of mental health which is substantial Thank you. Thank, thank you, Carol. And again, I think that's a crucial point there. And I will declare the interest of having worked within social work, including within, within mental health and within children's teams. Um, if we could only start to get the interventions in earlier, we will eventually see, I think it's widely accepted, we will eventually see actually cost savings as well as better outcomes. But we have to prime the pump to make that happen. We have to have the workforce and all the elements in place. So that's a, cru a crucial thing for us to have a conversation around and get that delivery. Um, so I'm going then to Orlea and then I have Chiara after that. So I'll go back to Orlea Flynn, please. Go ahead, Orlea. Uh, thanks, Chair, and thanks, Kula. And Siobhan, maybe just to, to follow on then from um, what you were discussing there with Carl. So, um, and, and I, I didn't want um, like today's conversation to be in any way negative because obviously it is mental health awareness week um and I had no intention of of sort of dreading it um that way but to be honest um after the briefing from the minister this morning um there's no other there's no other tone that I can take and I know that both of you have mentioned a couple of times about it's not necessarily about the funding and I get that and we've already spoke about the workforce and you know, um, all the early intervention stuff and, you know, all the cross-departmental stuff. But from my perspective, um, I have been raising the issue of mental health literally in every single committee meeting from the health committee set up again. And, you know, for all the good and all the progress that we've seen, and, like, I call that out each time, and I've commended the minister and the department, um, you know, each time. I can just hear a wee bit of feedback. I don't know if everyone else is on mute. Um, yeah, so I'm getting the feedback as well there, Arlea. So just give me a second, Arlea. Can I just check with broadcasting there that everyone is on mute? There is a wee feedback coming across on the line. Try it again now, Arlea, to see if that improves it. Yeah, thank you. Um, so so for, for all the positivity that we've seen, I just feel really despondent um, from today's briefing and from the briefing that we got from the health officials a couple of weeks ago around the money. Um, to follow up on these strategies because what we were told, I mean, clear enough from the minister's own words this morning, it's not there. Um, you know, he did set out that there isn't funding to deliver on all of this. So I um, am concerned about that. And I get, Siobhan, when, when you talk about, you know, demanding from government that we need to, you know, we need to see action on these pieces of work. Um, and, and we should, and I mean, I'll speak to anyone who will listen as well, who can help out and deliver on some of this. But my concern is just that the health department is the lead department for mental health. And, you know, um, the we've been banging on forever about, Kula, you had mentioned it, about the percentage of the, the budget share that's, and the minister mentioned it himself again this morning as well. It's historically been underfunded. So we know all this. We know that the NCOMS is getting the breadcrumbs from, you know what I mean? A really, really small pot of money as it is. We know addiction services and, and, and drug and alcohol services are getting eight million of you know the overall health health budget, which is tiny, it's minute. And it's just 
I, I am just getting frustrated. You know, we've seen the health inequalities report that come out the other week. And, you know, all, all the stats and the data is telling us that, that more and more people are dying. The, the amount of drug deaths have trebled over the past 10 years. Um, the health inequalities in the most deprived communities um, are, are the gap is widening in terms of mental health, drug and alcohol um, indicators. So um, we got the breakdown of the amount of antidepressants that have been prescribed just from 2018. And, you know, the, the, the constituencies of Carl and I represent North and West Belfast. I'm not being procreal, but when you're talking about deprived areas and where you're actually seeing, you know, the, the, the severe outcome of poverty and deprivation and poor mental health, it's, it's in the communities that we live. And I think that's some of Carl's frustrations earlier on about the families that she's meeting with and dealing with. Um, I'm dealing with similar cases as well. And um, I think that, you know, even in North and West Belfast, the amount of antidepressant prescription forms from 2018 have increased by 40,000. Do you know? So it, it, it's just, it's madness. Um, and I don't know if you are feeling the same concerns that I'm feeling, that it's great that we have all the strategies, but where really is this going? So listen ju just to sum it up i suppose my question to, to kuda yourself as a children's commissioner in terms of mental health and young people and siobhan yourself as a mental health champion um you know what can you physically do uh, practically do with the department of health and with the minister in the time ahead just to try and make sure that i mean that that, that we're we're trying to push this as much as we can um because i just think it's going to be it's it's just going to be um almost a waste of a lot of good work if we can't we can't get the funds to deliver on it. Um, and just your point, Siobhan, on the crisis review, um, I don't know if you heard earlier the, the briefing that we had from Thomas, but he was saying he's getting that review to the minister shortly. But I suppose then on the plus side, he was saying the review is more comprehensive than what they thought it was. So there's obviously loads of good detail there, but it's just getting to the point that, yes, we'll have the detail, yes, we'll have the reviews, yes, we'll have the strategies. So where's it all going? Siobhan, do you want to go first? I was worried you would say that. No, this is this is huge. This is what keeps me up at night, honestly. We you know, the strategy is is gonna be really good, but it does need to be funded. Um, in terms of your question though, what can we do practically? Right. So as under a mental health champion, what I can do is make sure that we are not wasting the money that we have. And that when we're spending money, that at least we spend it on actions that are going to make a difference and a positive difference. Um, and, you know, improving mental health and providing services, it's not always intuitive. And some of the things we're doing, you know, we could be more efficient in, in the way that we're working. Um, and, you know, we, those crisis intervention services are a really good example of how an intervention can can save a lot of money further down the line, an early intervention, um, a quick intervention. So we need to use money that we're um that we're spending we need to use that wisely and i think in terms of my role that's what i want to focus on i want to look at, at really making sure that what we're doing and the expenditure that we have is um is being spent effectively and in a way that will support people and improve people's mental health and reduce any duplication in the system i think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit i would call um, you, you know there's a lot of staff who are really keen to be involved 
involved in mental health and prevention who want to deliver interventions, brief interventions. So there are training, there's training that we could do there across the workforce in mental and physical health that, that would mean that people receive interventions at an earlier stage. That is not necessarily going to be costly. There's lots of free online training programs so that, that health service staff can avail of, that want to avail of. And I've certainly seen so much of this in the past year. There's an appetite out there for change. Nearly every group in charity, regardless of who they're working with, they want to be they want to be doing something in terms of mental health. So we need to really exploit and capitalize on that so that we are cascading mental health um, interventions and wellness across society and making sure that everything that we do in every government department is promoting mental health and well-being. And we need to monitor the implementation of the strategy so that even if there's not an increase in funding, and we know there needs to be an increase in funding, but at least that what we're doing is that we're using the funding um, using the funding well and as an academic I can point to sources of evidence about what works and, and what what we could be doing differently and what we could be doing online and digitally for example to reduce costs to save time so that we have those face-to-face interventions for people who really need them and for people who would benefit most so that, that that's my offering there but yeah this this really concerns me and I'm keeping a, a very very firm eye on all of the developments particularly when that strategy comes out and how it's implemented. Um, I'm glad you you went into that detail, Sean, because Olia, I suppose I want to say um, that obviously that there is some despondency with regards to um, where we're at with with money, but I, I, I just want to reflect on the six years that I've been Children's Commissioner and the journey we've been on in Northern Ireland with regards to with regards to mental health, um, particularly for our children, and young people, we're in a very different place than we were ten years ago because we're talking about it. We're encouraged. We're, we, we, we're, we've begun to. We're not there yet, but we've begun to remove the stigma. We've begun to understand that there is a continuum of of mental of emotional well being right through to mental illness. And that what we want to do is keep it that we're encouraging our young people to talk about it. We're supporting our parents to support their young people. We're supporting our professionals to talk about it. We're also um, seeing young people demanding, demanding their rights uh, when it comes to uh, mental health and well-being services. And and these are are really positive things. I suppose from from if I, I'm I'm talking about a Nikki point of view alongside all the advocacy and the, and the individual advocacy work we would do with families. I am very proud of, of Still Waiting because what Still Waiting did, having done all that work for 18 months, is actually across those 50 recommendations made very clear, specific recommendations as to the way forward. And my office is now invested for the next two years, uh, which is as long as I have left as Children's Commissioner and, and, and for the 18 months uh, uh, since publication, is to... If you like, hold the hold the minister and his team's feet to the fire to make sure that they implement it. You know, so we have tried really hard to make sure this this strategy is not one for the shelf. And there are more services out there for young people. And I do I don't want anyone listening to this to think there's no services out there. There are. There needs to be more of them. They need to be embedded. They need to be holistic. But I do want to say we're in a different place. And you're absolutely right. There is not enough money in the system. We need to see more money coming from Westminster. But I want to finish, and it's almost also in answer to Carol's question. 
the mental health of uh, and well-being of our children and young people and our society generally is absolutely the primary responsibility of health but its causes are found elsewhere its causes are rooted in poverty its causes are rooted in educational inequality its causes as we've heard are rooted in some family circumstances a myriad of them and unique to northern ireland and we saw it so so vividly on tuesday its causes are rooted in our conflict in your conflict i've, I've only been here 27 years but its causes are rooted in there and today's children are live there is no way that those 10 families and the hundreds of members of those families have not lived that trauma for 50 years and their children are still living it today i'm not blaming the families i'm blaming the, the fact they couldn't get the answers to those questions and until we can find a, a way forward in northern ireland around the conflict uh, very very challenging it's much easier to say than it is to do then we're not going to be able to respond and support our children and young people to have better mental health so this this is why i go back to ho to our whole government approach because we have to resolve poverty we have to resolve our fundamental inequalities we have to support our families and we have to find a way forward for for, for our community and that's and that's how we're going to make sure we need less money in our mental health system no, listen, thank you so much. And I just want to thank you both for, for all the work that you are doing around um, the issue. So thank you. Thank you, Orlea. And the final indication that I have for this session is from Cara. Um, so go ahead, Cara, please. Thank you, Chair, and thank you both uh, for being here. Um, just off the back of uh, the comments already made by other members, um, I have a real interest around um, you know, the use of substance abuse. And I think this is kind of the aspect where health and education overlap with our young people. And I'd spoken with a few young people recently and they've said the kind of education around um, you know, alcohol intake and drug use, they felt is really inadequate and quite outdated. Um, and we know, you know, drugs at an earlier age uh, can have, uh, you know, no question, they contribute to poor mental health in our teens, uh, but also they can contribute to a dual diagnosis later in life. So I I'm just intrigued to get an answer uh, from yourselves. Can you expand on the gaps here, um, how they can be addressed and what role you think schools can play in supporting mental health and education uh, around drug and substance misuse? Thank you. It's a big question. <laughs> okay, I'll so come in on that. Who's going to? Yep. Well, I'll come in on that. Thank you. And that's a good question. <clears throat> I, I would just want to um, highlight that, that the framework, the, the school's framework, um, sh should include this as a risk factor, as an issue that needs to be discussed in schools. And we, need to, we do need to move towards um, a greater awareness of the, the proportions of young people who are using drugs and alcohol, but particularly drugs. I think alcohol use has declined recently. So we, we need to be real real about the fact that people more of our young people are using drugs um, and we need to know what they're doing we need more data and evidence around this and we need to address it in the school setting setting and and raise awareness of the harms but also provide an opportunity to discuss in the school setting what young people are using and the implications that that will have for their mental health um, we also need to reduce the stigma around uh, drug use um, and that, that that's so very 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 important as part of a, a bigger 
conversation and recognize that most of our young people who who use drugs uh, will not go on to develop mental health problems as well but when you have that overlapping uh, drugs history of trauma um, per social support uh, per relationships within the family then you do create a, a situation that, that does increase the risk of mental illness for that young person so it does it does need to be brought right into the schools but we also need to be providing mental health services who are equipped to manage young people who are using drugs and alcohol and, and the dual diagnosis service is a really good example of that you know we need to be able to provide dual diagnosis services for young people as well as adults and that means recognizing that young people are using substances because of a history and um, they become dependent on substances because of a history of trauma and adversities and all of those things and and mental illness as part of that so we need to be treating mental health problems and mental illness alongside addictions rather than uh, separately to to the addiction, and that's what's going to going to be needed. And the mental health strategy does address that, but I think it you know we need just a broader understanding of how comorbidity operates and the the commonality that is trauma that influences both mental illness and drug drug use there too. So those are my thoughts. Maybe cool, I would have more to say on that. Yeah, thanks, uh, Siobhan. Just to very quickly add to that, because I'm mindful of the time. Um, this was, a, 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 as I said, a focus of still waiting, and we made some recommendations, and we currently have that in amber as as a way forward. Um, it is too difficult for a, a young person who has a, a substance misuse issue to be able to to be able to resolve the underlying issues, and we know that young people with substance mis substance misuse issues are the ones who are more likely to die through suicide or yeah. overdose, you know, yeah. in, in our children, uh, in, the, in the young people's um, uh, statistics, often alcohol, drugs, drugs particularly, are an issue. The substance misuse strategy or substance use strategy is it has talked about young people, but not in the detail that we would have liked and I would have liked to have seen. So the reason it's still in amber is that we need to see more strategies. We need to see, as Siobhan has already said, services that are able to address a young person where they have young uh, mental mental ill health and substance or trauma and substance that they are able to do one without waiting for them to to dry out uh, and do the other because it's it's like a it's it's like a chicken and egg what comes first and and they have to you know so we we, we need services that are more available to them we need as again as Siobhan has said to remove the taboo but also we know and somebody mentioned A&E earlier we have seen an increase in A&E referrals to calm services over over the last few years um uh, you know between 18 19 and 1920 it went from 27% to 42% because those and it, it is many are the young people obviously young people in crisis um and but also young people who who use substances and that because they feel they have nowhere else to go and their families have nowhere else to go to get them safe to get them to a place where they can be safe so so there's there's more work that needs to be done and we will be scrutinizing the substance um uh, use misuse strategy very careful or the action plan very carefully to make sure it has taken into account fully children and young people and and, and their rights Thank you. Thank you, Kula. And uh, just apologies there, folks. I don't know if my camera was on, so just apologies um, for that. But no, those insights are extremely helpful. And I do know recently um, constituents have said to me there's been a, a number of uh, teenagers under 18s presenting to A&E in those early hours. And there's a really severe 
lack of support and um, real life stories and you know it's horrifying but um just back to um i suppose uh the topic of local sport champions i'm mindful of time so i will try and be very quick on this um i know i've raised this uh, at a previous meeting siobhan you had joined us um just around the role that uh, local sports clubs such as local ga clubs football clubs rugby clubs um and we know that uh, the chair had mentioned previously oftentimes young people feel comfortable talking about mental health in youth you know youth club settings um, something a little bit more informal, a little less kind of a sterile, you know. Um, and I'm just curious to see if there's any more conversations around this or what more has been done to promote mental health uh, in sport. Thank you. I, I can come in there on that one. Since I took up this interim post, I've met with the, the some of the leading sports organisations, including the GAA, also Rugby, the IFA, getting all the names right. Um, and they're all doing really great stuff. And again, this is an example of something that we need to be um, spreading information about. And, you know, it, it's not, they're providing, they're not doing it with, with additional extra funds that are coming from health. You know, um, and they're training people in mental health first aid. They've got champions. I think we should all be mental health champions and we should be doing this in all sorts of settings. But sport's a great setting. Um, and they're doing these the suicide prevention work there too in the public health agency are cascading suicide prevention training so that those mental health champions within sports organisations who have contact with young people and know and intuitively know when their players and members of their clubs aren't well, um, that, that they have the skills to provide brief interventions and direct people to um, support and services at an earlier stage. And I've even had sporting organisations uh, contacting me around providing services themselves, paying for services. You know, they're, they're doing a lot of amazing work there. So it's great. And we want to we want to sustain that and continue that beyond the pandemic. Um, so I, I think that's really important. And, you know, it would be good at some stage. And I think Pure Mental are one of the groups that have called for this, where we have a directory of support, um, which includes all of the different types of support provided through all, all the organizations including sporting organizations um, and many many people will have this as a, you know through their clubs and they're just not aware of it so let's improve the awareness of, of what is available as well as well as keep calling for funds to improve services and i i think that uh, Everything Siobhan's just said, and and I think that's this has been one of the benefits of, of beginning to remove the stigma and talking about it is that where wherever a child is, a young person is, whether it's a sports club, whether it's a youth club, whether it's a drama club, whatever that extra, you know that 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 when they say or when somebody picks up that you can ask the question how are you and you're ready for the answer and then know whether you need you can do the little bit of looking after yourself or whether you need to refer on so that there is going back to um the no wrong door that you know whoever that young person chooses to disclose their concerns and distresses that that that, that person is able to deal with it in a way that doesn't shut down the young person because it's an enormous privilege when a young person shares with you whether you're you, whether you're the sports coach whether you're the counselor whether you're the youth worker and, and and we need to make sure we're we're able to support those people to be able to respond appropriately thank you and yes i do note you know in the kind of rural areas uh, within my constituency uh, those kind of sports clubs are the hubs 
Um, so getting in there and having that kind of champion is just so important. And oftentimes young fellas, that would be the safe space for them to really open up. So I appreciate your comments there. Just one last final one. <clears throat> I note um, from an educational perspective, um, it's really good to hear, um, you know, the conversation around giving young people uh, the vocabulary to talk about mental health, to understand anxiety and express how they're feeling. Um, ju just, I know it is an educational question, but it is mental health. Um, what do you think is the best mechanism? Do you think it is, uh, you know, mandatory workshops throughout the year for pupils to attend? Do you think it's, we should have a class focused on health and well-being? Where do you think the gaps are? And from an educational perspective, what can we do more of or what should we be pushing for? Thank you. Okay, so it's all of those. It, it's 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 having um is it, it's embedding it into into where we are and it is having well-being classes in the in the way you would other, but it's also being able to identify those young people. So we've talked about nurture units, mm -hmm. uh we know about nurture units in schools, but also other programs that are going uh, uh, accredited programs going into school. There does need to be a quality assurance mechanism here around the program some of the programs that are going and make sure that that we know that they will improve children's mental so that so some some targeted interventions for some young people but also and it goes back to what i said at the beginning you know there was a lot of talk before school restart about mental health and well-being and those exam year kids including year sixes in some cases went back in and didn't didn't feel it didn't experience it and so i i think that for some young people that that bond of trust has been broken with their schools uh, and with the system, SEA and the Department of Education, when well, I think I think there's there's blame or responsibility at all three jaws, and um, and there's no point doing a class here if actually you don't feel it in every other aspect of your life in school. So what what does uh, a, a well-being school, a nurture school, look like? And that's, I think, where we need to have the conversation around that measure. Because young people, you know, like, as I said, uh, one young person said to us when we asked them around, that spark of positivity left me when I went back into the school because it was all about testing and it was all about grades, which are incredibly important for the next phase of their lives. But that they did feel that they'd been sold a pop with regards to their well-being. And so we can do all those things, but we have to experience them, experience them in the corridors and, and in the canteen, as well as in the classroom. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you. No, thank you. Okay. Um, Siobhan, do you want to come yeah. in? Or, yeah. I, I just want to say what Kula said in a different way, <laughs> just to keep my spoken, basically. No, I'm coming at this from as a, as a psychologist, from a psychology perspective. Um, so let, let's give you that. So mental illness is a result of two things. It's a result of the amount of stress and pressure that we're under and their ability to cope with that. So yes, we can give young people coping skills, we can help them problem solve, we can make them aware of their, their own response to, to stress and pressure, but we also need to look at the other side of it and look at the system with, within which they operate. And, and that means actually reducing the stress and pressure that we're under. So there's no point in teaching emotional regulation and problem solving and self-awareness if you have a whole system that is constantly piling on stress and pressure. And actually I would argue trauma to that young person and Kula's right those relationships are absolutely crucial you can't feel psychologically safe if, if you don't have that safe environment if you're constantly under threat because you're marked and graded and ranked that is the most shaming thing that we can do to any individual and that's what we do to children every day of the week you know and that is not a system that is about well-being and mental health.
thank you, Siobhan, just to, to finish there. That, yeah, I, I completely agree with, with both of your comments there. And I think what I've seen is that the link that young people put on their academic achievement and their overall self-worth. Uh, and it is very sad that they've kind of been thrown back into the classroom, uh, you know, rigorous kind of right back in there uh, with exams. And it's just, um, it presents a lot of difficulty. So no, thank you for your comments and, and your answers. Thank you. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you everyone for that um, really important session and, and, and one certainly I think as a committee that we will want to continue to keep a focus on young people and keep an eye out on young people and see how we can work together. It's very reassuring that there are people like yourselves in positions of responsibility and that can actually contribute and impact on this debate in the very positive way that, that your knowledge, experience and passion for the subject can generate. I suppose just to touch on very very briefly one of the one of the other things that came up last night and was kind of a um, a, a point of challenge in a way, but I think also something relevant and it's around people being able to uh, get the support when they need it that is accessible and and it's I think it's really important that point that you underlined there about the immediacy for young people. It has to be when they're experiencing you know a long term appointment. It just doesn't cut the mustard in that sense. But one of the points was, and I think Curla, you had said, or Siobhan, one of you had said about one in eight young people will experience these. And I think it is also important. One of the young people last night said, you know, it's also while, while that uh, message that it's okay to not be okay, I think has really been a very useful message and allows people up. But it's also okay to be okay. So while we're dealing with the problems here, I suppose we don't want to catastrophize it to the extent where, where all young people feel that that. So I think that's maybe an important thing as well, but is there anything either of you want to say just in closing as well before we complete the session? No, it's a big job. No, just to say it's a big job we've got ahead. Um, and um, and if we're serious, then, then, then we can do it. I'm, I am uh, optimistic and I do think, you know, particularly I can see the impact that meeting with the young people had on you, Colm. Uh, and um, I hope that, you continue to work with them uh, and work with us because we can we can do what we can within the resources we can be better we can do better um and it's i suppose just to end it's just okay to be you and whatever it is you need it's okay um and and that's really how um and and you are good enough not not you're definitely good enough column but to say to young people <laughs> you are more than good enough yeah, absolutely. I, I understood. I understood that. Not because, <laughs> not because, but I knew it. I knew what you were saying. Okay, Okay, I want to just go back to something that Cara said that actually triggered a thought. You know, our young people are really tied up with academic achievement and, and it is so embedded in their sense of self-worth, um, perhaps in Northern Ireland more than other places. And the reason for that is that we have such huge inequalities in our society. So the consequences of not succeeding academically, they see that, you know, and that's that's why we need to take a step back and look at the social determinants of mental health and really start to address those if we're serious about tackling um, mental health in, in our young people. And all of the other things will start to resolve themselves. Um, and, and we're right, most most of our children will be absolutely okay. They, they need to connect, they need to have fun, they need to enjoy themselves, and we need to provide opportunities for them to do that. And we need to continue to listen to them as parents, as politicians, as leaders. We need to continue to engage because they have the answers and they will tell us and show us how to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you very okay. much. And 
And just finally, for me to, to just just to reference the point that, that again one of you made in the early stages around the youth assembly, um, it's a, an initiative that the speaker has brought forward. It's very well advanced, and they are currently recruiting. So I would want to say to all young people out there directly, have a look at that and get involved. Put your views across. If it were left to me, I would I would I would involve them much more than than we even do at present. Even though we're we're trying our best, but I think young people just bring a freshness and energy and honesty and a genuineness to to a lot of the discussion and solutions. So I'd encourage everyone who, who wishes to to get involved in that in that uh, youth assembly. Um, thank you both very much for attending our meeting this morning, and no doubt we will meet again in, in the course of our work. I think this is an issue that we are all determined to keep a focus on and to, to try to uh, provide some positive impact and, and improve things for the future. So thank you very much, and good luck for now to both of you, and take care. Slan, Liv. Okay. Okay, members, thank you. So I am going to uh, move on. Um, we have... We have overrun a little there so far, so I'll move into correspondence members, and I'd like to draw your attention to a number of items there. First of all, item 7.2 is a response from the department to the committee's request for further information on the temporary modifications to the children's social care regulations. The department advises that it has decided not to proceed with a new set of regulations following the consultation process. Um, and I think we have had some discussion on that, but I think that is in keeping with the evidence that we heard and with, I think, the view largely that the committee formed. And certainly I know that others out there who contributed to that debate very, in a very meaningful way, Children's Law Centre, VoIPIC and others, and younger people directly with us as well in, a, in, a, in, the, earlier, uh, in the earlier manifestations of those regulations. So just to welcome that, are members content to note or members want to say anything further on that issue? Content to note, thank you. Um, so item 7.4 then is a response from the department to the committee's request for further information following the recent brief briefing from officials on a number of coronavirus health protection regulations. Do members have any comments in relation to that item? No, thank you. Members content to note? Yeah, Jerry, were you looking in? No, I'm not hearing back from Jerry, so I'll, I'll come back to him if, if it is the case. Uh, have members any comments or proposals on any other items of correspondence? No, not table papers. I'll go to table papers next. Jerry, were you looking in there? No, sure. I wasn't, sorry. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, so members otherwise content with the actions proposed on the correspondence memo? Yeah, members content. Thank you. Moving on to table papers then, the table pack contains a number of further items of correspondence. At tab 7.10, there's a response from the department following the briefing on rebuilding services. The response provides further information on staff recruitment, on CAMs, mesh clinics, and co-design co-production. Uh, our members, uh, I notice, I notice there, is, there is information there and, and significantly more information than we have had to date around the co-design co-production. But remember, there's very little detail in terms of who was consulted with. We see a lot of the activity in relation to the amount of meetings, but would members be content to seek further information from the department on the makeup of each of the working groups and subgroups? So we get a sense of the breadth of the consultations. Members content with that? Yeah, thank you. At tab 7.13 then, there's a response from an individual in relation to presenting to the committee regarding the mother and baby homes, Magdalene Laundries. 
Are members content uh, that I write to the individual to outline the committee's role and the ongoing work that we're doing on this matter? Yeah, thank you, members. So, members, moving then to the forward work programme, and I refer you to the draft work programme at tab 8.1 of the pack. Are members content to note the forward work programme as drafted? Yeah, thank you, members. So, uh, members, moving on then to our uh, committee's consideration of the severe fetal impairment ab abortion bill. And I would like to now ask the clerk to give a brief overview on the responses to the committee's consultation. So, we've had a consultation out there for a number of weeks in relation to this bill. And I'd like to ask the clerk to brief us uh, on the committee consultation and the current work that committee staff are undertaking in relation to this bill. So, clerk, could you go ahead, please, and brief the committee on, on this? Thanks, Chair. It's really just to give members a, a brief overview of, of the work that's been going on over the past number of weeks. Um, we're due to consider this item in more detail next week, where we'll have a chance to consider the submissions and, and to look at them. But all the submissions should now be available on your ECP packs in your bill folder. So in total, um, there was approximately 39 submissions from organisations. Um, there was then approximately um, 75 submissions from individuals. And then there was a further campaign um, where we received nearly 9,000 email template responses um, in relation to the bill. So um, at the minute, what we're doing is going through um, the responses from the organizations to summarize that for members. And we're also going through the responses from the individuals um, to highlight some of the the points that were made in in those seventy five um, sorry seventy six submissions from individuals, um, just to pull out the key points from them as well. Um, as I said, there there was a, a template of approximately nine thousand emails. Um, it was the same template being used um, in each of them, so um, that will be provided. That's been provided to members as well to be able to see the template too. So. We, we're hopeful that um, in the pack on Monday, there will be this two summary documents, one in relation to the organisations and one in relation to the individuals. And then at next week, members will have a chance to discuss the, the written submissions and think about who it wants to invite to give um, oral evidence over the coming weeks. Now, at the minute, we scheduled three weeks for oral evidence sessions. Um, so I think it's the 3rd, the 10th and the 17th. Um, if members are wanting to hear from more um, organisations that that would allow them, we'll have to look at either additional meetings or run slightly longer um, meetings on, on those days. So it was just to flag up um, the work that's ongoing. But we are going to publish the submissions from the organisations on the committee's webpage today. Um, so they'll be available for the public to see. We're doing a wee bit of work with the individual um, responses just to make sure all personal information is redacted. So it'll take a wee bit of um, an extra couple of days just to make sure we redact all the personal information. But we hope to get them out on Monday or Tuesday and publish them on Monday or Tuesday. Um, so it was really just to give members an, an overview um, of, of the work that's been going on at the minute. Okay, thank you, members. So um, clearly that's going to be a, a significant item of work. And I do think that uh, moving forward, we're going to have to be really conscious of time. And I, and I thank and appreciate members for sticking very rigidly to sometimes quite curtailed times today 
But as we go into the next few weeks with all the consideration of of both bills that are in front of us at the minute, I think we're going to have to really, really uh, keep a tight eye on, on the agenda times and try to stick to those to facilitate this consideration. So, uh, members content then with that as outlined by the clerk? Thank you. Any other business then, members? Do members have any other business today? Carol, go ahead. So, Colm, uh, albeit lately, I sent yourself and Keith an email. I recently met with Chasney, uh, Julianne and Aidan from Chasney, and it was primarily around some of the care homes in Belfast, but it struck me that the work that they're doing goes right across, and I think all the members would benefit from hearing of some of their experiences and work, particularly in relation to easements around covid around advocates for families, around the department's approach, the concerns around RQIA. I mean, it was very, very informative, but it is something that um, I think members will really benefit from, in my opinion. So if we could maybe agree to put that in the forward work programme. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I think I... I, I, and I do, I do agree, and I do know, I do know the organisation. They have done uh, some sterling work around representing families, and that, and that is an issue I'm sure that we're all concerned in. And maybe it would be because it would be good to hear from them. Maybe we should put it uh, even if a little bit further forward in the work program, as long as it's in there, say, to, we'll, we'll try to get them. So um, it'll take some of the pressure off, maybe if we. But our members agreed that we put that somewhere into the forward work program. Yeah, members agreed. Thank you. Okay, members, um, the the only final thing I want to do then before I go to the date, time and place of the next meeting is just to remind members that we have an informal meeting with one, two, three GPs on Friday at 2 p.m. And this is part of our part of our additional work around the whole concept of Mental Health Week. So just to remind members and it'd be great to see as many of you there as possible. I know Fridays are just as busy in constituencies as every other day is is in the uh, in the assembly here. But uh, it'll be good to see you all there. So our next meeting then, members, will be on Thursday, the 20th of May at 9.30 a.m. via video link. Thank you for your attendance today, for your contributions, and take care, and I'll see you all then. Gormay Agav, Agav Salam.